Hello, and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's yes. video game podcast. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jason Concepcion, also of The Ringer, bringing you a holiday edition of the podcast. Hello, I love Jason. It. How are you? Happy holidays. I refuse to go quietly into the night. That's <laughs> how too. I am. <laughs> Me too. We're here right to the end of the year, the darkest depths of That's 2017. Right. I got VR for Christmas. It happened. This is incredible. It finally happened. We've yeah. been talking about it the entire history of this podcast. It, this Really, the narrative through line of this podcast is, should we get <laughs> yeah. VR? Can we Will's get anyone to give us VR? <laughs> yes, the answer that is, is no. A, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, I have convinced someone to give me VR, namely my wife and her family, because no one else would. <laughs> so I am wonderful. the proud new owner, mostly proud, I think, new owner of a PSVR. So I've I've entered this brave new world of VR. Gonna, I hope I'm not too what late. What is your What is your first experience with PlayStation VR going to be? Let me guess. Star so Wars. I that's what I most wanted for. I, okay. The, the unfortunate thing is I have to buy Battlefront. I guess again yeah. just to play the VR mission, which you know seems worth it. I'll do it. And I got it in the Skyrim bundle just because that Wonderful. was the easiest way for my wife to get it. So I now have Skyrim again. <laughs> that's exactly what I need. But I don't know. I'm I'm kind of worried about it. I don't know whether this is the right time to buy or the wrong time to buy, whether I'm too early or too late. And it's hard to some know. of the things, yeah, Impossible I mean, some of the things know. that I wanted, like we really lusted after Star Trek Bridge Crew. We really did. And it did. turns out that just as I get VR, it's no longer a VR exclusive because they've just released it in non-VR form so that... <laughs> Other people can actually play it. <laughs> the yes. cruelest twist of all. Right. It turns so, out that you want to uh, you want to reach the largest audience possible. Yeah, evidently. Yeah. So, I mean, I still feel like there's a, a backlog of a year plus of PSVR games, and Absolutely. a lot of them are crap. But there are some good ones that I've missed and have been sorry to miss. So I'm gonna get I don't know Thumper and super hot VR and Farpoint and a bunch of others. If anyone wants to recommend any to me on Twitter, please do. But I feel good about getting it as a gift because I could never quite convince myself that it was the wisest use of my own money. But (laughs) my wife wasting her money or her family wasting their money on me, I'm fine with that. So (laughs) I I don't have to feel guilty about this. And my mother-in-law was actually worried about this. She said to my wife, when my <laughs> wife said, like, let's get Ben PSVR, she was like, you know, you're never going to see him again. And you disappear into the matrix forever. Yeah. I mean, I guess she'll see me. I just won't see her because I'll have a VR rig on my head. I'll just, I'll still be sitting there, disembodied Ben, not <laughs> seeing or saying anything. But <laughs> Well, you know, it's like uh, in San Junipero, they put uh, time constraints on it so that right. uh, yes. y- your entire, your conception of reality doesn't uh, <laughs> totally devolve around you. Yeah, that's right. They should impose some constraints on me so that I get shocked if I'm in VR world for too long. Anyway, now I'll be able to talk about that with some sort of authority <laughs> and personal experience. So that's good. So we have an extra long episode for yes. you all today. Our longest episode ever. This is going to be like a double length episode for the end of the year because we didn't do one last week. So 
We're going to lead off with a Game of the Year roundtable, which we've been teasing for a while. And we're going to have some help from a couple of our colleagues, Matt James and Justin Charity. They're yes. going to come on. We're going to pick our personal top tens and then wrangle over a combined top ten. It's going to be somewhat contentious, but not terribly contentious. So that's fun. That'll be about as long as a regular episode is. And then we're going to talk to the creator of Goragoa, a new game, yeah. Jason Roberts. We've been playing it. We talked to him. And then we're going to wrap up with some Star Wars The Last Jedi talk because we've been getting a few requests to talk about Star Wars together. And you don't really have to twist our arms to do that. So we'll stick that on the end of the episode for people who haven't seen it yet or don't want to listen to a Star Wars discussion on a video game podcast. You don't have to. But that's the plan for today. So we're going to get right to our Game of the Year conversation and bring in our colleagues. All right, so we are ready now for the Ringers for Achievement Oriented 2017 Game of the Year conversation. I don't know yeah. if we're empowered to speak on behalf of the whole Ringer, are we? I guess who's going to? I think who's going to who quibble? Else is gaming? <laughs> yeah, I think the only people who would have a vested interest here are the people on this call, namely us, as well as our old pal Justin Charity, frequent guest on this podcast. Hello, Justin. Hello. And we are also joined by another returning guest, Matt James, designer for The Ringer. Hey, Matt. Hello. Happy to be here again. Hey, Matt. Yeah, happy to have you guys here. So we are the people who play games at The Ringer, <laughs> or, <laughs> or, you know, most of them, the people who felt like they had played enough games this year to participate in this discussion. So we're not going to do a definitive, these were the games of the year because we are but four men and none of us covers video games full time. So this is going to be more of a, a personal list. There are some big games of the year that none of us has played. And this is not really a, a slight of them aside from the fact that we decided not to play them in the first place. So what we're going to do, I think, is just each share our personal top 10 are our personal favorites from the year and then we'll see how much overlap there is in those and then we will do some haggling and we'll try to combine our lists into a top 10 that we are fairly happy with and this won't be like the giant bomb cast extravaganza that goes on for like seven hours when they have several people and they've played every game (laughs) yeah i wish we could do that but we don't have the time or the expertise so we're just going to talk about our personal list and we'll see how it goes so does any of you want to start should i start I don't know. Any? Do you, do you, are you ready, Jason? Do you want to go or do you want to wait? I, I'm ready. I think I think the number one. Oh, like, is, oh go. Charity. And I just want to say that I don't want to go first because my list is a repudiation of everyone else's list on oh, this God. podcast. So it's important that I go last. <laughs> okay. All right. You are allowed to go last. Let's go. Let's go. Number ten to number one, just for added suspense and drama. And by the way, do we care about like what is eligible and and what is not? I, it's hard to tell. Like I have a couple on my list, maybe that were out on PC or something before this year, but just came to consoles and I just played them and they're new and different in some way. So I I figured that's close enough to be eligible. But if you want to quibble with any of that, you can. Anyway, Jason, feel free to, to go first, lead us off. And- I, I, I will start first. Okay. For my 
number 10 game yes. of the year. I picked Resident Evil 7. Okay. Which is a game and a series that I haven't really engaged with that much over the recent years, certainly <laughs> since Same. Uh, the, the, uh but I, I I really liked the Resident Evil 7. And there was something about the atmosphere of it. It stayed true to some of the core mechanics of the Resident Evil series just while bringing it into a new generation that it and it was truly frightening. Yeah. Ben, you, this is not for you, but I mean, there's a portion of the game where it's you're just literally trying to hide from a guy who's trying to kill you, and it is absolutely terrifying. It sounds terrifying. Um, one of the it was a, a horror game that I just really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. All right, then let's see. Ooh, I'm gonna go with Star Wars Battlefront mm-hmm. 2, yeah, uh, at number nine. An excellent shooter really solved a lot of the problems that were. In the previous iteration of the game, then I will, like, let's say Cuphead, which uh, vastly outperformed what I thought it would be. I was prepared for this game to, uh, you know, a game that's that's delayed for this long, that is like a platformer. You're, yeah. you're really prepared for it to not be good. And it was great. Yeah. Um, then I go Uncharted. Lost Legacy, mm, okay. which is an excellent, an excellent uh, addition to the... Uh, Uncharted franchise, um, Middle Earth, Shadow of War, mm-hmm. uh, a game that I don't actually play. I just play to kill things. So <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, take that as you will. I have not played like the missions. I haven't gotten deep into the boss battles. All I do is like jump into 15 orcs and I, and I try to kill them. <laughs> um, um, so where well, that was my number five, number four, Ooh, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Uh, let's say if you're a Mario fan, you have to get it. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's, I mean, it's incredible. The Switch is fantastic. Um, I much enjoyed it. I didn't talk about this game at my number four, but uh, this year, but Mario Rabbids Kingdom, mm. Kingdom Battle. Yeah. Uh, just really fun strategy game, obviously, uh, based on whatchamacallit. What's the game it's based on that I didn't play? Oh, uh, yeah, let me ra- raving <laughs> rabbits. Yeah, uh, one sec. Uh, <laughs> let me look it up. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, it's, uh, something com. Oh, was it X- XCOM? Wait, no. Um, yeah, XCOM. Oh, it's, based, yeah, oh, it has, it's based on XCOM? I didn't even it's know. It's kind that. of like the XCOM mechanics, yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, so the mechanics of XCOM and it's Mario has a gun. What more do you really need to know? Um, Not a top 10 name for a video game though. No. <laughs> uh, so number four, Horizon Zero Dawn. Just like if you're not playing it on PlayStation, you just have to play it. There's, yeah. just, there's something really calming about just the atmospheric effects are beautiful, like kneeling in the grass as as these kind of like dino robots look around with their headlights kind of arcing through the mist is really, it's an experience. Yes. It's just truly amazing. Um, uh, then I would go, this is going to be crazy to people, but... Like I enjoyed this game for the two weeks that I played it, which is Arms. Um, wow! <laughs> yeah, I, I like. I really enjoyed it. And then I go, I'll go Mario and Breath of the Wild is my number one. Okay, all right. Well, the top of our lists look the same, I think, but yeah. the rest of it more different, I think, than I had expected. So, 
Battlefront 2 is probably my just missed, like my number 11, my my honorable mention. And if you want to say that some of the games I'm going to pick shouldn't be eligible, then you can just slot Battlefront 2 in there. I, I felt bad putting Battlefront on a game of the year list because it had like one of the worst years in a lot of ways. And the, the PR aspects oh. of the rollout and the microtransactions and just the messaging and the here's what things cost and here's now they don't cost that and now they don't cost anything. And that was really all a disaster. So I don't want to reward Battlefront for that, but those things didn't really affect me personally, I feel like, because I don't really care about competitive multiplayer all that much. I don't care about my my rank or whatever, so I wouldn't have been affected all all that much. And I was just happy to have a single-player story back in Star Wars, and the Starfighter Assault mode on its own was one of the best things I played this year. But my actual top 10... I'm going to go with Rhyme at number 10, which was, uh, we talked about it briefly. I had the developer on the show and it's sort of like a, you know, indie game kind of Zelda-ish in certain ways, kind of like, uh, you know, some other indie games like Limbo, things like that. You're just a, a kid who washes up on an island and you have to find your way out of there and it's beautiful, great art design and sound and I liked it a lot. I'm going to go with Shovel Knight at number nine. Obviously, Shovel Knight has been out in other forms before, but it's out for Switch now, and I think it's sufficiently new and different that it counts. It it got new additions this year, the Spectre Knight, a a couple new campaigns. Just a lot of fun, and if you haven't played it before, there's now a ton of content there. It's like three games in one almost for a single game's price. Just an old-school sort of 2D side-scroller type game. Really good. And... Number eight, going to go with Soma, which we talked about recently. This is, again, another game that was out before this year, but it is now out on consoles, and it has a new mode that we discussed recently. Here's where I might might object. Is it truly the the game if you're playing on Wuss mode, though? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was the only version of the game I was going to ever experience, so I say yes. Okay, And, And I did, I played it the regular way just so i would understand what the difference was and anyway it's a great story and i think that removing the ability for the monsters to kill you just made it better i think even if you're not someone who's scared of games typically you would think that just because it was not really a good part of the game and they just stripped that out they left all the atmospheric stuff all the storytelling and i think it's better for it going with splatoon 2 next We've we've talked about it before. Really fun game. Shooter online is fun. I enjoyed the single player. Never played the first Splatoon, so the fact that it wasn't that different didn't bother me. And then I'm going to take for my number six game, Pyre, which is a, a game that we talked about earlier this year. Talked to the developers of both the game and the soundtrack, and I loved that game. It had like a, a little eSport almost buried within it. Between this, buried within this very single player oriented game. Yeah, I, I really like that game a lot. And that has stuck with me. I'm taking Cuphead at five. And then I'm going What Remains of Edith Finch at number four. Snub Ooh. from Jason's list. I'm surprised. But <laughs> yeah, that one has stuck with me. I, you know, of, of all the walking simulators, or as someone tweeted at me, walk em ups, which I prefer <laughs> actually as a term. Uh, I think this has been my favorite so far, just the variety of the gameplay and the settings and the characters. Then I'm going with Odyssey at three, 
Horizon Zero Dawn slash The Frozen Wilds at two, and then Breath of the Wild at one. So that is my list. Do you want to go next, Matt? Sure, absolutely. There's a there's a bunch of overlap with you Good. guys. Um, but I also want to just preface this by saying that uh, this was a year that it really hurt to not have a PS4. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it really hurt not having a PS4 this year. Yeah. Uh, Xbox and Switch, I played a lot of. But uh, I'm glad that, that Charity's on this because I know he's <laughs> going to have a lot of PS4 stuff to talk about. Yes. But uh, number number 10... <laughs> <laughs> jealous uh number 10 mario kart 8 deluxe okay um that was just way better of a mario kart than i thought they were going to put out mm-hmm. and uh of course the switch makes every experience better yeah. um had a blast playing that uh number nine uh destiny 2 mm, okay um jason turned me on to destiny this year i'm and, sorry uh it was uh <laughs> i apologize it, it was it was really fun until it stopped being fun. Like you, exactly yeah, how you said exactly, it. That's exactly what <laughs> yeah. the experience is. Yeah. Uh, number eight, I have Prey. Mm. Um, Prey. Uh, I'm big on games that 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 let you, you know, kind of really explore a world and feel like in an atmosphere, and also games in which you can pick up literally everything. <laughs> um, so that drives me I crazy because I, <laughs> I, I have a compulsion to pick up everything because you never know. Yeah, me too. And that's why I like it. <laughs> that's uh, why I don't like it. I also enjoyed being toilet paper for the first time ever in a game. Uh-huh. Um, Prey was a lot of fun. Uh, number seven, uh, Wolfenstein 2. Mm-hmm. I have yet to um, play this and I feel solid, like I've, yeah, me yeah, too. I feel terrible about it. Solid shooter. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it would be at least towards the back end of your lists if you. Mm-hmm. Um, number six, Cuphead. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, what yes. a gorgeous yeah. game! What a uniquely gorgeous game. Um, number five, Resident Evil Seven. Mm, okay. uh, I've played every major Resident Evil for since they started, and I loved this one. Uh, I loved how it took so long <laughs> before it felt like you were really yeah. playing a Resident Evil game. Uh, but once you were locked into that, it was, oh man, it was just fantastic and really really scary scary and looked amazing. Um, okay. Number four, uh, NBA 2K18. Oh, Oh, just because Uh, of Jason's writing. It's, it's all it is. Uh, it's primarily because of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that, that was it. No, it's a great, uh, first of all, they just flat out made the experience of playing basketball a little bit better this year. But primarily the big jump for me was the the social elements to it. I thought they really have built a great community with it this year. Um, and just so many modes to play. Such a celebration of basketball. Really loved it. Uh, number three, Edith Finch. Yeah. Um, really stayed with me. Me too. Um, and I didn't expect to have a game that you can play in one sitting be number three on my list right. this year. Um, but it's that good. There's there's a segment of it that I will remember forever. I think it's one of my, it might be my favorite gaming, <clears throat> excuse me, favorite gaming moment of the year. Actually. Which, which part of it uh, people can skip ahead if, if they, we've already spoiled this game on the podcast, I think, yeah. but, but go ahead. <laughs> it's towards the end. It's, it's the cannery. Mm. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Of yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you're in the guy's head. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, number two. Mario Galaxy, number one, Breath of the Wild. Okay. All right. So starting to see some here it is. themes develop here. But here it is. Here is, <laughs> here is the Justin King Charity. Troll. 
Lay it on <laughs> us. Let's hear it. Get them. <laughs> okay, so I, I want to preface this by saying that my list is haunted by the classic conflict of Gosh. modern gaming, which is games that have great narrative and kind of uh, decent gameplay versus games that have great gameplay but uh, derelict narrative. Mm. Um, I would say this about some games in my list, and it's it's a conflict that will will haunt me in all of my days of gaming. So, um, number 10 for me, Super Mario Odyssey. Uh, the best story about a wedding since Lars von Trier's Melancholia. Uh, <laughs> I, well, I, that's the thing. It's like, I think from a gameplay, I think, I think playing that game, it just makes me want to sort of pick up an old N64 controller and play Mario 64 again. But I just think the story in Odyssey, even if people want to complain that it's too short, and I get that, I just think that the execution of that story and the sort of left turn that the wedding at the heart of Super Mario Odyssey takes uh, is insanely good. Yeah. Number nine for me is it's a game that I'm not, I don't think anyone has mentioned on here uh, is Observer. No. Um, a a Pol- I believe it's like developed by a Polish team. Um, Observer uh, Rucker Hauer is the lead voice actor in Observer, um, and it's this very it, it's this sort of dystopian cyber punk detective mystery that is sort of as as far as a detective mystery goes it's not particularly thrilling it's just thrilling because there's the core dynamic of the game where you sort of investigate people's uh memories and minds and you sort of plug into them and i think this game basically does a unique and exceptional job of rendering the subconscious and sort of dream logic, I guess you'd call it, mm-hmm. uh, rendering how an actual dream plays out, which is, I think it's a thing that's hard to render in movies and in TV and literature. I think it's, it's hard to render how dreams actually progress and how a dream actually feels. Yeah. And I think this game is just like one of the few things I've ever interacted with where I was like, yeah, this is, this is, it's, it doesn't feel too artsy fartsy, but it feels, precisely as incoherent and occasionally jarring but also occasionally specific as the human brain works when someone's asleep it doesn't feel like um, max Payne when you're running through hallways and there's blood dripping from the ceiling so and why the wall. did you remind me of this <laughs> <laughs> why did you remind me of this? and there's a baby crying yeah. <laughs> uh, all right good one we have you on uh, here for I, I these like unique to, picks yeah. keep going <laughs> Um, number eight for me is Horizon Zero Dawn, okay. uh, which I've also I played the Frozen Wild expansion. I think that expansion is great. Me too. I, I just love that whole snow environment. Yes. I love the new monsters you fight in it, or the new robot dinosaurs you fight in mm-hmm. it. However you want to describe them. Yeah. Um, Horizon, I think overall, it's a for me, it's a very it's it's an overloaded game in a lot of ways. There's way too much. Um, there's way too much video game business mm. and it sometimes is way too many side quests that feel like this is a thing that a video game would want me to do mm-hmm. 
but I just think that the, the core thing, I think the core dynamic in that game of um, tracking down huge robot dinosaurs and overtaking them is very gratifying. Yeah. And I think the core story is, I think there are a lot of interesting ideas in the core story. This is post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Uh, I really liked it. You know, Silicon. Yeah, I, I like the story a lot and think that it, Same. it, it just feels like a very fresh I liked narrative. it a lot. Um, and I appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, number seven, Gravity Rush 2, which is a game Ooh. I don't know that we... Have we ever talked about Gravity Rush 2, guys? I don't know if we've no. talked about it together. Mm-mm. Damn. It's weird. I I knew nothing about the original Gravity Rush when I bought Gravity Rush 2. I just thought Gravity Rush 2 looked super cute, which is why I initially bought it. And uh, I just love... I, I have no idea what's going on in the core story of that game. I know that there are really fascinating sort of subplot threads about tax collection (laughs) (laughs) like urban politics in it for some reason that i I find really interesting on on an atomic level but uh i just think that the colors and the the art and specifically the movement and controls in gravity rush 2 where you just sort of get to soar around um you can basically soar at all levels of different cityscapes of multi-level cityscapes I don't know. There's just this sort of um, there's this unbound movement that you get to do in Gravity Rush 2 that feels like parkour if parkour involved flying. Um, And I enjoy that a lot. Um, uh, I love Gravity Rush 2. My number six is a game that I I hate actually. It's called Echo. Did anyone play echo Did any of us play echo other than me? i i interviewed the developer of echo in the podcast and played enough to be able to talk to him but wasn't able to to finish not because of the game i just got swamped with a bunch of other things but it was i it was a really cool idea and premise at least yeah it's echo is you're sort of walking through for the entire game you're walking through a palace that's populated with doppelgangers of yourself who sort of mm-hmm. mimic how you interact with them and i don't want to over explain the the system of the game but you basically have to survive this palace that's populated with people who are sort of learning from you and trying to overtake you as you make your way through the palace and in a way mm-hmm. the game the game feels and looks very deliberately simple and straightforward and and almost sort of monotonous and redundant right and there are huge stretches of monotony in in terms of how the palace is designed and it's a very it's like this very elegant but otherwise very big redundant palace but the main thing in that game is learning basically how to game the opponents in it. it it's a game that is very much intent on forcing you to master the game's own logic and mm-hmm. the game's central mechanic in a way that feels kind of classic. Like it, it almost feels like you're playing Minesweeper with guns in a way. I don't <laughs> know exactly how to make that track, but it just feels like a very classic, this is a difficult video game experience mm-hmm. to make it all the way through to the end. And I really appreciated that. Like Echo is definitely mm-hmm. the most difficult game I played this year. I was very frustrated playing it. Yeah, well, but it I learned from you, and you were too good. For your own good. Oh, well, that's, yeah. those are your words. That's your blurb <laughs> for me. <personally>. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, number five, we'll consign to. I've guessed about we'll consign to on this podcast before. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the only video game with good cutscenes. This Wolf's Led Two particularly has the best depiction of a birthday of of a party of a birthday party that's ever happened in a video game, possibly <laughs> in any any medium. <laughs> um, uh, a lot of interesting ideas about Nazism in this game. Uh, there's a point at which the gameplay is not that gratifying once you, or once I finished the core story. Mm. Uh, I think ultimately I realized that the story to me mm. is just so much more engaging than the the gameplay in this case. Unlike you know old school Wolfenstein 3D, where the story is barely there and you really are just sort of entranced shooting Nazis for hours on end. But mm-hmm. uh, I definitely I got a lot out of Wolfenstein too. And I'm happy for yet another opportunity to talk about it on the podcast. Um, yeah. Number four for me is Breath of the Wild. Love the right. game. Respectable uh, showings. Yeah, number four is good. Number four is good. Um, mm-hmm. I like hang gliding. That's that's my summary <laughs> of Breath of the Wild. I like climbing. That's the main things I like in that game is that you can climb anything. And then you can jump off it and glide yes. safely. That is the best thing <laughs> um, about the game. Uh, I'm not even going to... That's it. That's all I'm going to say about Breath of the Wild. Okay. So it's <laughs> it's four instead of with. one or whatever, just because the story was not great, which is true. I think we can all admit that. But you're maybe placing more weight on that than than we are, which is fine. Yes. Uh my number three is the longest story uh, <laughs> in a video game of the year, Persona 5. Yes. A hundred hour video game, uh, which is not, is not perfect by the time you get to the end of it. It definitely, I, I think very famously at this point, kind of goes off the rails in its final 10 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but these, the characters in Persona 5 are great. I think a lot of the a lot of the antagonist storylines are great. The character storylines are great. It's such a beautiful, such a beautifully rendered game. It has a great art style. It has a great soundtrack. Um, I, I would actually say, yeah, this is my second favorite soundtrack of the year, video game soundtrack of the year, probably. Um, yeah, I don't know. I love Persona Five, and that, and that, mm-hmm. that was the game I played super early in the year so it's it's held up well for me yeah uh, I, number two i knew prey. that was coming okay all right number number two for me is prey uh a game that i am currently playing number two and i've played i've played through <laughs> four times now wow prey is, prey is prey is a game where half the time when i'm playing it i i think it's brilliant and it is brilliant and then the other half of the time i'm playing it i think this game is broken it's like it, it's got to be number two. very glitchy sometimes. It's got to be number two. It can be very glitchy. It has insufferable load times. It it has a lot of. You can see a lot of um, worn scenes in that game sometimes, but I just the way it's designed. You spend the you know the entire time in Prey, you spend on this space station that is just so elegantly designed. And specifically, I, I feel like that game is almost marketed wrong. I think people originally talked about the idea that, like, oh, you can 
play toward different endings and you know i think the way people talked about choice had to do a lot with narrative but to me the thing about prey is that it gives you this huge elegant video game environment and you really can do anything in it at any point in the game you can really break the video game environment you can really break that space station and sort of bend it to your will even at points where you think you're not supposed to be allowed to do something in the game the game is ready for you to have like put in the effort to uncover um Thing. So it's just a game that invites a lot of exploration and feels very rewarding and is also uh, incredibly scary when it wants to be, which is something I appreciate, unlike Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I appreciate it, just not firsthand, just from afar. I appreciate it. All right. Well, I know what your number one is, but lay it on us. My number one is Near Automata. Woo! Near Automata is my number one. It's yes, great. I love it. I cried. I literally cried during three of the 24 endings of the game. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, so we've had you on to talk about that also. And that's, I mean, I started it. I liked what I played and then just got sidetracked. It's been like yeah. number one on my got to come back to this list for a while. And I still intend to. So. All right. If I have been paying close enough attention, I think we have four games well, three games that are on everyone's list. So Breath of the Wild, Super Mario Odyssey, Horizon Zero Dawn. So we can lock in three of the top 10 in some order, those three. Then three of us took Cuphead. So Justin, yes. if you'll allow us to lock in Cuphead on the basis of three of us Go having it, it on our list. All right. So we've got four games here that we all agree on. So we have to figure out not order yet, but just which are the six other games that we are going to complete this top 10 with. Now, I think we've got at least six games that two people took. So we've got Resident Evil 7, Mario Kart, and What Remains of Edith Finch, Wolfenstein 2, Edith Finch, oh, I already said Edith Finch, and Prey. So we've got five games, I think, that two of us took unless i'm leaving anything out Mm -hmm. so i don't know if we want to just just have those go in i don't want to have anyone like everyone should get like their top pick in i think but what do you think jason i'm fine me personally i am fine with all those games especially because i do feel as if i snubbed edith finch which is a game i enjoyed a lot but um Mm -hmm. just i'm not going to go back to Okay. I would All like right. to see so it make got, us. What means on Edith I agree. Finch? I also agree. Okay. I agree about Edith Finch. Good. Okay. So we've got five for sure. Now, Prey, Justin has played four times. Um, Matt, <laughs> which is how disturbing. Much, where was Prey on your list, Matt? Do you, do you feel very strongly about Prey being on this it top was, 10? It was number eight. Uh, I would I would recommend it being on the list. Mm-hmm. Um but I'm not. I'm not going to fight that hard for it. Uh huh. Okay. And but I. I, I think it's. I, I think if you're going to put it on the list, it, it. You wouldn't regret it because of what Justin was talking about. Because it. It really kind of let you push boundaries for you know, try to break the game and. It was pretty innovative in a lot of ways, which is which is something that like I'd give that the edge over Mario Kart, which was just like a great Mario Kart. Right, and Mario Kart was you know like an enhanced port. 
right? I mean, it's it's the deluxe version of Mario Kart 8, but that was out already for Wii U, I guess. I mean, I have games on my list that were out in some form before also, but I, maybe that factors into this. I don't know. It doesn't need to. But all right. So should we put Prey on? Jason, we didn't play it, right? But I did not play it, but I'm anxious to pray to play it, to pray it. <laughs> all right. You're anxious to play it. Mm. <laughs> Okay. All right. So let's put Prey on there. That seems that seems right. That seems fair. So that gives us six. And then we've got Wolfenstein and Justin had it. Matt had it. Again, Jason and I didn't play it, but I think we both want to and feel yes. like we would like it if we did. <laughs> so I am, I, am, I am very confident that it would be on my top 10 list if I had played it. Yeah, as am I. So I, The thing at this point that's holding me up is they're going to release it for the Switch in 2018? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, that's a tr- true story. That is the thing that's holding me back right now. Yeah, okay. I'm buying it right now. All right. Okay, so let's put it on there. So that gives us seven. Now we've got... RE7 and Mario Kart 2, and those were both Jason and Matt picks, right? Do you guys Mm -hmm. feel that those should be, must be on there? I feel like Resident Evil more than than the Mario Kart. Mario Kart was great. It's a great version of Mario Kart, but as as Matt said, the Resident Evil was truly, it's an inspiring game. And even for someone who, like myself, has been kind of out on the series for a long time, it was a great way back in. Yeah, it's a turning point for the franchise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Truly scary game. Yeah. Okay. So that's on there. So we've got eight locked in in some order. And then Mario Kart's kind of hanging out there. A couple of people took it on their personal top tens, but maybe we we won't lock it in yet. So we've got two spots to play with here. And I feel like, Justin, you want to make the, the near argument here? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm just so disappointed. <laughs> Ben and oh my God! That was it's fair. It's justified. I feel like a parent who has been betrayed. I just don't Whoa. know what to say. No, I, I, I kid you not. You all got me back in the video game. So in way, you know, in a way, I should sue you all for the price of you know my at least. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it is a game that I just I had no, I had no sense or expectation of it going in. I just knew it had this like anime aesthetic that was just, yes, I will give you fifty nine ninety nine for this and I'll figure out what it is. And initially it, I eased into that game so softly and that game does so much emotionally. It, it has uh, these characters who are all androids or robots. And I was just like, well, I wonder what the emotional range of this game could even be, really, right? Like, it, it feels like it's just sort of, you know, post-apocalyptic action game, but with cute anime aesthetic. Like, how much can you get out of that? And I was just so impressed by, one, just how smooth and slick a lot of the gameplay feels and how, how much the, how slick the cinematography, how much the, the camera, uh, how slick the camera feels. Um, but also, yeah, I was just, I was super impressed with what that game is able to do with what otherwise feels like a very video gamey premise that, um, you know, maybe sets different expectations for than what, what near automata actually achieves. Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, I feel very strongly about that game. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I played enough of it to to like it and to think I would like it if I kept going and I want to keep going. And I would feel bad if any of us did not have our number one pick on the yes. list. So I... I'm, one, one more note. Also, it has the best video game soundtrack of the year. Hmm. That is even more indisputable than its top ranking as video game of the year. It just has like... It has a beautiful score that I listen to while running and doing work for the ringer.com, uh, <laughs> among other activities in my everyday life. You did some work for the ringer.com specifically about that soundtrack, as yes. I recall. That is correct. I wrote about a boss fight that has an exceptionally good uh, theme uh, that is accented by the fact that you hear that theme and play that boss fight while fighting entirely in the dark. Yeah. A great video game experience. Experience. All right. So we've got nine games then locked in. Before we finalize the 10, does anyone want to make a case for the last spot? Maybe it's something that you personally like that wasn't on anyone's list, or maybe I'm leaving out something that multiple people selected, but just whatever you would feel bad about not seeing on the top 10, if anything. Ben, how do you feel about Soma? Because like, I like Soma. Soma's probably my number 11. That would be whether you think Soma deserves to be on the list. I liked it a lot. And I played it with that with being able to die. So I <laughs> I mean it. Yeah. I I liked Soma a lot. It would probably not be the first game I would fight for on my on my list here. And I think the fact that it's not new you know the there's a port and it has the mode for people like me to play it which is new but the game itself is is a couple of years old so i don't know it depends if if no one else feels strongly about something else then i'd i'd be up for it but it's uh i'm not gonna fight for it hard if anyone else prefers something else mm. What if number 10 is just the video game that we call life that you just throw about every day? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I didn't like that game this year nope. that much. So. <laughs> that, game was not, that game was a little tough, to be fair, this year. Yeah. Was Soma better? Leo <laughs> was Soma better. <laughs> yeah. Life did not have the, the Soma mode this year. It was pretty scary yeah. all the time. So um, I don't know about life. Uh, what what what's like the highest game on your list, Matt, and your list, Jason? That is not represented here, or, or you too, Justin. Um, uh, it would be definitely Arms, which I enjoyed much more than everybody else did. But I really felt like when it was when it was fresh to me, which was like for two weeks, it was really fun. Like mm. it, if they would have added more content and kept and just added, just you know, tweak the game a little more, added more. Uh, characters, something, more arenas, more game modes, uh, it would be really a great fighting game. As it is, uh, I understand that it's high, but I did really enjoy it. I thought it was one of the best. As a person who's not in, really into motion controls, I really liked using the motion controls on ARMS. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything else high up on there that we haven't included yet? Not My much. bandwagon pick, man, is Persona 5. Oh, yeah. You know me. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for that game. I just don't have 120 hours. Yeah. That's tough because right. like yeah. I feel like if we were trying to make a list of the top 10 games, not necessarily our top 10 games, but just the top 10 of the year, that would probably be on there, right? And it's just that three of us haven't played it, so I don't know I'd what to do. The one from your list, Ben, that I would... 
love to see on also is Pyre. Yeah. Because it had just a real, the writing was top notch. Yeah. Um, and the kind of game within a game sports feature of that game was like either one of the things, the right. story the, game or the sports part of the game yeah, would be great games game. on their own. Yes. Yeah. And, and to combine those things was like truly original. Yeah, I agree. All right. So Matt, anything that you want to throw into the ring here? Well, I had NBA 2K18 as my number four, but that's not, you know, it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Much like Persona 5, it's not for everybody. <laughs> it's um, a very so... similar game. I totally agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else? I feel good. I mean, most of my games are on this list already, right. so I'm feeling that. Okay. Good. So we've got this final spot basically is down to Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, Persona 5, Pyre, and Soma, maybe. And I would probably go with Pyre over Soma. So that's that's tough. Because Persona was, what, third on your list, Justin? It was. Yeah, it's pretty high up there. I mean... But listen, listen, I'm I'm a sappy anime boy. I don't know if you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I totally anime. acknowledge. I totally acknowledge my flaws. <laughs> Makoto High. <laughs> Need more Makoto content. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't know how to settle this. It's either Pyre, Mario Kart, or Persona 5 for our, our 10th game. Wait, do you know how? I, I'll settle it. Here's how I'll settle it. I'll use my Persona. Okay, that'll be the last Persona joke I make on this podcast. <laughs> uh, any thoughts, Jason? You have any thoughts on what has to what has to be there? Oh, man, I, 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 th- I think Pyre. Yeah? What was the most innovative? What was the, what was the most unique out of those? I mean, I would say Pyre probably, right? I, yeah, I, didn't, I, mean, I didn't play the other, I didn't play Persona 5 and I mean. I played it a little bit and then I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I literally was like, I don't have, I just don't have 80 hours. Yeah. And it, that's what I I don't said. like this old man, like everything I saw. <laughs> yeah. So, and yeah, I mean, Mario Kart is, is a long running series. This is a, right. a good Mario, it's Mario Kart, Kart, but it's, it's a Mario, Mario Kart. Kart. Right. And and Persona is is the fifth. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess just based on innovation, I would say Pyre probably just because of its kind of game within a game, which could have been a game of its own. And it has definitely stayed with me. Although it wasn't on your top 10, Jason, right? So you snubbed it and now you're making the case I for it. I did snub it. I did snub it. Uh, you know, just only because, listen, the writing and as we said, the game within a game design was top notch. But there were some other things that like... You know, I I would have liked more voice work on the game. Would have brought it up a little bit. You know, just mm. like it's a good, it's a very good game with an incredibly unique design. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's you know, I I would want I wanted a little bit more from a game in my top ten. Mm-hmm. But I I would absolutely pick it to be in the overall top ten of what we are choosing from. All right. Well, Matt, Justin, are you okay with this? I am, but with one note that just the repeated coldness toward Mario Kart from from Jason and Ben makes me suspect that you both suck at Mario Kart. (laughs) No, I'm great at Mario. Let's anytime, anytime you want to hit, you want to, you want it on a 200 cc like cart, you can come get it, my friend. Anytime, I will, I will face you with dry Bowser and I will run you off the fucking racetrack any day. Okay, well come. Come talk to Tanuki Mario, okay? Come talk to Tanuki Mario. We can settle it. 
Don't worry about it. It has to be 200 cc though. Any other cc? 200 cc. That's it. <laughs> 200 cc is that's where the big boys race. Okay. No. <laughs> 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 All right. Dry Bowser, character of the year. Yeah. So I love it. Our ten yeah. not ordered yet. We have Cuphead, Pyre, Super Mario Odyssey, Horizon Zero Dawn, Breath of the Wild, Near Automata, Resident Evil Seven. Wolfenstein 2, Prey, and What Remains of Edith Finch. So we all had Odyssey, Horizon, and Breath of the Wild. So I'm going to say that those are definitely the top three in some order. So what, what, I had Breath of the Wild 1. Jason, you had it 1. Justin, you had it 4. Yes. And Matt, where did you have it? Number 1. Okay. So we've got, we've got three number 1s for Breath of the Wild Justin, do you want to fight us on this, or are you okay with with giving it number one? You know what? I'm at peace with it. I'm at no, peace I'd... with a lot of things in 2017. You know, <laughs> I haven't. I need to. I need to hear what your problem with with uh, with Breath of the Wild is. Besides the so it's the writing. So, well, okay. So Matt raised the point a moment ago about which games were innovative this year, and I definitely, to an extent, right? I I definitely. Re- the unique and innovative gameplay of Breath of the Wild. I just, it's a game that for whatever reason, every time I plug into it, I can't ignore how much I don't care about the story at all. Wow. And how even the, even the sort of um, more patchwork things that feel like they're meant to um, substitute for, uh, core sense of narrative, a lot of the memory flashbacks, um, and, and a lot of the Zelda voice acting in these cutscenes, and a lot of the, um, a lot of that. It just doesn't totally come together for me. The voice acting from Zelda uh, doesn't work for me. I find it kind of annoying. Um, yeah, it's like I like I like the whimsicality of the game from a gameplay perspective and very much dislike the whimsicality of the game from a narrative perspective. It feels like it's just sort of putting in a minimal amount of effort to seem like an epic, to seem as epic as a lot of the boss fights uh, sort of suggest that the game should be, I guess, if it makes sense. Mm. It just feels like a suit. I mean, it feels like a double-edged sword sense of what an open world game is in, in that Breath of the Wild. It, feels very open but it feels it feels the freedom is so boundless that it really is boundless and i kind of wanted some bounds (laughs) 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 all right so game of the year okay cool right (laughs) are we yeah yes yes yes. okay (laughs) upset of the century i gave gave my little bernie sanders my bernie sanders (laughs) descent you said your piece okay so where did you guys have Odyssey? I had it at three. I had it at two. 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 Ten. Ooh, okay. Ten. Wow. wow. What is it? Now, this is actually more shocking to me. Like, what was your problem with Mario Odyssey? No, I don't have a problem with it. I just think that, again, I, that's sort of an opposite of Breath of the Wild, where Super Mario Odyssey, I love the story. The story is great. Uh not a fan of jumping. Even even like the midpoints. Even even Pauline. Like I love the Pauline storyline. It's so good. Is it the fart um, cloud that runs? 
<laughs> threw me off for a while. The game. It's that clown costume. It just the yeah. overall, the overall impression of that game to me is is just sort of like, oh, this is really cool, and that's sort of as far as it got me. It felt really cool, but it also just felt really cool. Like that's basically. I had it at three instead of two. I had Horizon Zero done at two. Mostly, I mean, maybe I enjoyed them roughly the same amount, but Horizon just lasted a lot longer. I just, I played a lot more Horizon between the core game and the add-on. I played that for many more hours than I played Super Mario Odyssey. And I don't know, maybe hour for hour Odyssey was more fun, but the overall enjoyment I got from Horizon was probably above Odyssey. But I mean, I'd be fine with either at two, but we've got... You guys at two, me at three, and Justin at ten. And then where did all of you have Horizon Zero Dawn? I actually didn't. Oh, have you didn't? It, oh, okay. Um, oh. On my list. No, I didn't oh, play it this okay. year. But yeah, I trust, trust you guys. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I did it four, but I'm I at th- at three seems fitting to me. Where did you have it, Justin? I have it at eight. Mm. All right. All right. We can go with uh with three. So then are we just uh overruling Justin here? <laughs> putting Super Mario Odyssey <laughs> at number two and then uh, Horizons are done at three. I suppose that that feels feels right. Nintendo gets the top two spots this year. So where do we go from here? Those were, I guess, I mean, Cuphead is the next game that three of us had on our lists and yeah. I had it at five. So, I mean, I'd be okay with going here i think if if you guys would it it's uh you know it feels high but it's it it feels high that said in terms of the art it was one of the it's probably the most stunning game of of the year um and as i said before just for how much it was delayed i was prepared to be like wow this there's absolutely no content this game it's a platformer with some with a nice skin and it was not that. It was much better than yeah. that. It, um, it was there's a, a really subtle bit of complexity to the game. So it, is, it is beautiful to look at. Um, it was difficult in the right ways at the right times. I, I, it still feels high, but I would be fine with it. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, I would put Finch above Cuphead. I yeah. did put Finch above Cuphead. So I don't know. I I'd prefer Finch than Cuphead. But uh, if anyone objects, I I feel bad weighing in because I played Finch and didn't play Cuphead. But I will say that I like Edith Finch enough to agree with you, Ben. Mm. Yeah, I, I did too. I did. Okay, too. and Matt Matt I'll liked it too. All right, uh, I yeah. I love yeah. Finch. Love All right, it. even though I will probably never play it again. Yeah. Probably, probably not, but that's okay. It, it has stuck with me, certainly. So, all right. So four is Finch. Five is Cuphead. So now we are left with Prey, Wolfenstein, Resident Evil, Nier, and Pyre. I think we can go ahead and put Pyre 10 just because it was uh, our, yeah. last, our last edition. So we've got a order here, six through nine, with Prey, Wolfenstein, Resident Evil, and Nier. Okay, I'm going for Resident Evil. I mean, you know where I stand. <laughs> I do. I do know where you stand. Ooh. Ooh. <clears throat> well, I, I didn't play any of these games or at least i played near a little bit but that's it so i'm gonna defer to what you guys want with these games i think 
I, I would go for, I, I, I will, as Matt said, I'll let Matt take it, but I would also, I would agree with Matt's take that uh, I like Resident Evil for this. Tell us why, Matt. Well, like I was saying, it's, it's kind of a reinvention of the franchise and it's got a great story. It's got great gameplay. Uh, I did play it again after I beat it. Um, I just thought overall it was just a complete triumph of a game. Um, and I should also say that when I played the demo, I wasn't into it. I really wasn't into the demo that they released before the game came out. Hmm. Uh, and, and then when I actually sat down to play the whole thing and see what it yeah. evolved into, um, wow, it just it, it blew me away. There, there's also like a just the uh, the ambiance of this game is really it's creepy all the way through. You can I mean, the the design of the game, the art design of the game is truly it's beautiful. You can look at everything, open a pot and find like disgusting, rotting, like food carcasses in there. And <laughs> it just the 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 weight of all that makes it so uh, even though the game is slower paced for much of it, you know, there's just like anticipation of something's going to happen. Yeah. That tension is just unbelievable at times where you're just like, you find yourself just creeping down a hallway waiting for something to happen and maybe nothing happens, but you know, it's a rare game that makes you feel like that. Totally agree. Really transportive. I'm in a lobby. I'm just on behalf of Nier Automata. I'm going to lobby Ben and say, do you want to reward a video game for being scary? Do you want to let these guys do that? (laughs) That's what they're saying. They want to let a scary game uh, take place over a not scary game. Your Automata is not scary no, at all. No, that's true. I mean, <laughs> that's my case. That's that's it. That's all I got. See, I'm I'm not anti scary game in general. I'm just anti scary game for me. If you have the the courage to play and enjoy a scary game, then I I celebrate that. So I I don't want to rain on anyone's scary game. <laughs> parade i mean i will say that i i played some near and i liked what i played and i plan to play the rest of it which i cannot say for resident evil 7 but two of you guys really liked resident evil 7 so i i would pay it like hard currency to watch you play resident evil 7 <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> like uh, it is terrifying like i had to play it in the daytime i really did was like nah, i can't me play too. this at night me too yeah. i literally didn't play it at night <laughs> <laughs> We're not heroes here, you know? Yeah, it's not. not. It's scary. (laughs) All right. Well, I don't know how to settle this. Justin wants near. You guys want Resident Evil. Two is greater than one. (laughs) I don't know if uh, that's the best way to settle this. But uh, if we go Resident Evil, then... Then, see, I mean, Justin played Prey four times, and Matt liked Prey a lot. So... (laughs) I don't know. I, I'm fine. I'm fine with. I'm fine with bumping for prey, since especially since I mean, four times is truly troubling and stunning. <laughs> four times. Yeah, it's I not mean, a I short don't know if game. I've ever done that. It's not a short game. <laughs> um, I don't think I've played a game four times since like Aladdin on Game Gear. <laughs> <laughs> uh not eligible for this year's game of the year list but all right let's do this let's let's put resident evil there let's go with near just so justin doesn't hate us and then we'll go with prey right and then we'll go with wolfenstein 2 does that sound right yeah that sounds great right okay i think we did this so the official achievement oriented slash the ringer game of the year top 10 starting with 10 yeah pyre Wolfenstein 2, 
Prey, Near Automata, Resident Evil 7, Cuphead, What Remains of Edith Finch, Horizon Zero Dawn, Super Mario Odyssey, Breath of the Wild. It's a good good list and good year for games. This was a really good year for games. And we didn't even get into PS4. Yeah, you do. It's <laughs> great. The PS4 is, you know what? I will say this. You can get a refurbed like PS4, non uh, PS4, the, you know, the, the HD streaming version or whatever, the, uh, the 4K version for relatively cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a tip from me to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'm going to take that tip. All right. So we did it guys. This was, uh, this was certainly an above average video gaming year i've got to say like just looking for forward to next year i mean it's hard to project these things but just looking at like here are the games to look forward to didn't look like there was any way that it could equal this year but you know it's premature who knows but this was this was a really good year so i'm glad that uh matt and justin you guys could join us for this we needed you and you helped so we did it guys thanks so much thank you justin we did it we did it (laughs) All right, we will be back after a very quick break to talk to the creator of Gorogoa and then talk some Star Wars. Quick break to tell you about the Ringer's YouTube channel. We stepped up our game in 2017 with weekly videos like Cousin Sal's Best Bet, Slow News Day, NBA Desktop with Jason Concepcion, No, No BS, Table Reads, Director's Commentary, and Captain Morgan's Make Believe Casino, as well as our video podcasts and mini-movies like Take Hunter, Ringer 360, and Claytheism. Coming in 2018, a weekly video mailbag from Bill Simmons, our boss, Mallory out of a hat, and a slew she of other not come out digital of shows. <laughs> she pulls things out of the hat, she, not rabbits. She answers questions out of a hat. She does other not come stuff. out of that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to miss anything? Just go to theringer.com slash video, or even better, please subscribe to our channel yes. at youtube.com slash theringer. We are joined now by Jason Roberts, who is the designer and developer and illustrator, the almost everything-er of Gorogoa, which we've both been playing. Hello, Jason, and congrats on the game being out there. Thank you. We'll start, I guess, with the origin story for people who don't know it. And every time we have an indie developer on who comes out with a game that is sort of a, a labor of love and an auteurist effort... If there's rarely like a, a very easy path to no. publication, it's, yeah. it's very rarely is it like, well, yeah, I, I thought of this idea and uh, just sat right down, banged it out. And uh, here it is uh, a uh, year well, later. <laughs> that's comforting to hear. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, it's always, yeah. yeah, it's always we underestimated how hard this would be. So can oh, you yeah. well, hey, <laughs> tell yeah. us a little bit about where the idea came from? Because I know it's sort of a almost a lifelong inspiration that you have converted into this form. Yeah. Every time the story gets told, it's, it's took longer to develop the game. Um, I was, you know, I first released the game in 2012, uh, or the original demo. And I was working on it in my spare time, you know, and then kind of in my mind and in notebooks for years before then. And I don't really know how long, um, the, so at an earlier time, I was trying to make uh, a comic, um, and you know, slash graphic novel, mm-hmm. and that morphed eventually would morph into 
uh, Gorogoa, and I've kind—I of, mean, sort of. I mean, I wanted to make a game, but then I guess decided that was too ambitious, and I said, "Well, I'll make a comic," um, because I like doing art, I like storytelling, um, and as I started to make the comic, you know, I found I was really getting into laying out the panels uh, on each page and how they fit together. And I think I started to feel like I like the, that compositional problem more than the, well, you know, the, I was having trouble with the story telling part of it and the story I had chosen was too ambitious. Mm. But I'm like, I like scenes that fit together into a larger collage. Um, mm. Yeah. And... But, I, you know, they, that itch to make a game was was still there. So I thought, well, what if these little panels that make up the comic kind of look like, uh, you know, game windows? You know, if you've got a game running inside a window on your desktop, like, what if they're interactive? What I, what I could move around in those scenes or or maybe, like, grab an object from one panel and uh, move it to another panel or, or something like that. And then I thought, well, what if you could take the panels and move them around and that sort of led me down this route of thinking about it as a card game for a while, uh, huh. where each of the cards has a picture on it that controls its properties, but you can interact with the scene of the card and then change how the card works. Um, but, you know, that's, that's an, I think it was an example of an overly complicated idea because if there's a sort of a complex top level card game, you have to invent that whole rule set. Mm. But, the game is really about exploring inside the cards and uh, and kind of and cheating at the top level game in a way, um, and that's it was kind of like two different ideas, two divergent ideas. So I I said, well, what's like the simplest kind of rule set for combining these picture cards? Um, and that's like, well, they just the images have to align; they have to fit on them, they have to fit together. So. Kind of, you know, that's obviously sort of inspired by a jigsaw puzzle. You've got a picture broken up into pieces, Mm -hmm. and then you fit it back together. I I always like that. You know, I, um, a lot of puzzle games have, you know, like, or escape the room games and things have this really cheap puzzle where there's just a picture that's broken up into pieces, (laughs) and, uh, you have to just arrange them, put it together. Um, and I just, I always, like, I knew that that's a really simple, uh, low-effort puzzle, but I was just, I've always been sort of unreasonably delighted by assembling pictures like that. So, mm. uh, yeah. I wanted to make that the whole game. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is there, like, a, a master storyboard that you have at home so that you could keep track of the sequence of moves here? Because there's just so much like things fitting into yeah. place with other things. And if one thing changes, then you have to change many other things. So how did you kind of keep the whole thing straight in your mind? I built, I never, I never had much luck with doing a paper storyboards or prototypes for the game itself. Um, for a while, I made these uh, sequence diagrams that would help me keep track of how many the, yeah, the, one of the challenging things was, you know, there's only four spots on the grid and I have to make sure that the game never generates more than five cards. It might not seem like a, a big deal, but it gets complicated and you have to ensure that, uh, a card is 
absorbed at a certain point as part of a puzzle. Mm. Um, when you fit two, like you stack two cards on top of each other and they fuse, like that's not just solving a puzzle. That's like the, that's population control for the cards in the game. Um, and so, so a lot of times I'll have to put in a puzzle. Like I know I need a puzzle that combines two cards because I know that I'm going to, I'm soon going to introduce another card. I need to remove one. And so, uh, I diagrammed that process for a while, but then I think I kind of got an, an instinct for it. Um, for the rest of the game, I mostly had to prototype it in the engine. So I would block in things in kind of rough, very rough visual form and see them fit together. Uh, because with all the sort of the, the way the visual tricks work, you can move around in space, but things have to align from one perspective and not another. Um, a lot of times if I try and draw that out on a flat piece of paper or picture it in my head, it's, it turns out like it, that it doesn't work. And so just, I have to build things in order to develop them. Let me just I'll quickly describe the game what we're looking at. I'm, I'm playing on iOS. So there's four panels and you're able to manipulate these uh, illustrated cards and like an early one is, you know, a boy seeing some sort of creature move through, um, some portion of a creature move through the streets of a, of a town. And then there's other ones where, like, you know, a, a war scene or an old man at a table. And as you manipulate these images, you find different things in them. You can zoom in on, on maybe a bookshelf or some detail on a throw pillow and move that around and, and some part of that image falls away and opens up and you're able to slide these images into each other as you find different uh, strange kind of correspondences between them. So how, how did, did it start as a story or did it start as images or how did you, what was the starting point into this project? I think it started more as images uh, and the design was more abstract when I started and it was more going for uh, a feeling than I had a particular mm -hmm. narrative structure in mind. Um, and I built the, the demo with in sort of like in that, in that spirit and not really having not really worked out anything in my mind, everything, not I mean, having not worked out everything and sort of like letting my unconscious drive the, the, the process. And then I had to stop and figure out like, what is this about, you know, what, I kind of like look into my own mind and try to figure out, what, you know, why did I make this? <laughs> uh, and, you know, what, because I, every time a new uh, tile appears mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, with the scene inside, I, I wanted that to have narrative meaning. I mean, it, you know, I know that the narrative is uh, oblique and, uh, you know, but, and, but I, it had to mean something to me. Like I didn't want anything to show up a scene or an object within a scene that wasn't justified by you know, that point in the story and like that location in the world. Like it has to be plausible that that object would be there. Um, and I early puzzles I had built just kind of designing imagery and scenes around to support the puzzles and make the puzzles work. Mm -hmm. And that kind of in the short term, was I think created kind of a pleasantly dreamy effect, but as that as you try and draw that out 
people can detect, I think, that there's no, that there is an underlying structure there and they're just throwing imagery at them. So I went back through the whole design, took a bunch of stuff out, and I've continuously cut stuff out when I feel like it has, when I've built stuff just to make interesting puzzles or have interesting imagery and in that's not tied to, like, you know, the, the, the meaning of the game. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been like an awkward process of starting out in, in one direction, figuring out what the, uh, what the game is about, what the story is about, and then kind of like, kind of backfilling and, uh, from there. But I, I think that's typical of a lot of projects, actually. Like you discover what it's about partway through, and then you have a mm -hmm. bunch of work to kind of redo. Right. And the game itself, kind of progresses as you go. And I know that it's almost like a time capsule, I guess, and that the early stages are sort of from the beginning of development. And then it gets more complicated maybe as you go. And so in the early stages, you can just kind of trial and error approach it or brute force it in a way you can just kind of move things around until you get things to click in the right way and then you can move on. But at a certain point, that stops working and you actually have to put some thought and foresight into your solutions to these puzzles. And so for me, I'm not really a visual thinker or learner, I don't think. And so it's a little challenging, but also very satisfying when you get these moments where everything does just fall into place and mm -hmm. You think, how did I not see that? <laughs> so what is the key to hiding these things in plain sight, essentially, so that there are interlocking pieces of these various puzzle pieces, but you don't see them right away? Yeah, I mean, this was this was a really difficult part of designing the game. Um, some of the people who were were fans of the original demo kind of sort of fell in love with it because of because of it. It felt surreal and strange and they could kind of wander through it. And they were okay with discovering these things by accident. And like, they love that wonderful surprise. Mm -hmm. um, but people who are, and those people aren't necessarily, you know, even fans of puzzles per se. But you have people who um, like puzzles and they want to be able to reason about them. And those people just get more and more uh, <laughs> irritable as the game. <laughs> you know, <yeah. laughs> uh, and... The, and you know, and so I didn't want to make the puzzles too, so you know, obviously to reason about something, you have to be able to predict, to make predictions, but a lot of the magic in the game comes from kind of surprise. Yeah. Uh, so in later puzzles, I try to, to like break, break it down into kind of this, a discovery phase where you notice visually that things fit together and you might not know what they're going to do. You put them together, uh, and that's that's cool. But you still haven't solved the puzzle. So there's always, I mean, or the the idea is that for the puzzles later in the game, there's always a piece at the end that you have to figure out, so that you leave on a sense of accomplishment. While there's, well, the game still has room for uh, surprise. Um, yeah. And like, I, you know, there's the the. I mean, I guess we can discuss some spoilers. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, allude to puzzles, not say how to solve them, but there's like the falling rock puzzle that is, I mean, you're saying the game is a time capsule, but like the first two chapters are the earliest part of the game that I made, um, you know, up till the green fruit, mm -hmm. but then it gets more complicated because most of the later chapters were revised and uh, like the most recently revised part of the game is the part that comes immediately after the first two chapters like that like that third chapter was changed a lot 
the falling rock puzzle is the was the last puzzle added to the game and i think it's very important because um you know the, the puzzle that comes right before it with this tilting shelf like it, it was never really my favorite i mean it wasn't a big enough problem to be removed but if, you know it, it was still possible for people to kind of muddle through it and maybe get to the end by accident and i needed a puzzle and the, the falling rock puzzle that you you can't really brute force you have to understand it um before solving it like you can come across the, the pieces of it and see how the pieces connect but then you then there needs to be this initial level of insight and I think that's really important at that point in the game for giving people a sense of achievement and a sense of confidence that, oh yeah, this is actually something that you, I can figure out that will ask some skill of me. Um, and, you know, I think, I think throughout the game there are moments where things just almost go to the point of maybe getting too complicated and, uh, in some cases, or for a given player. And it's, uh, but then hopefully, the game continues to reassure you. Like once you make one breakthrough, you'll see some a pattern or structure that you can use to solve the next couple of puzzles. Uh, and so, the overall effect, hopefully, is to make people feel like it's it's a comprehensible game, um, and that they mm -hmm. had to work to achieve it. Like there are some things, some solutions they stumbled across, but some things that they achieved through their own cleverness, and that's that's an important balance. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about sort of how the indie development community has changed in the time that you've been working on this game? I think that you were inspired somewhat by the success of Braid, as many people yeah. were. And, uh, you know, that's going yeah. back a ways now. And we have companies like Annapurna, which come along and help get these projects funded. Yeah. And I'd imagine that that is both very helpful and also a bit of a change to have an outside investor that is kind of, you know, helping corral you and also pushing you forward. And it's just harder to break through maybe with this type of game than it might've been a decade ago, certainly. So can you describe kind of those changes? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it would have been break about a decade ago. Maybe it did. Probably did. Yeah, uh, almost <laughs> right. 2008. Incredibly old right now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it, it was easier for any game that existed back then to any indie game that existed back then to break out because there were just fewer games. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know how the, and that's mainly, it's, it's hard, it's really hard to gauge sort of changing appetites, uh, over the years, but certainly the, you know, market saturation has been a big issue. And many indie developers struggle um, and, you know, stress out and worry. And people put a lot of time into a game and release it and it sinks out of sight or doesn't make enough to, you know, pay for the work that was put into it, um, which is really unfortunate and and, uh, and stressful. Um, I, you know, I, uh, I know a lot of people that are, that keep going and, you know, and uh, did they just have to be more strategic about it? Uh, yeah, it's when Braid came out, I didn't, it didn't even hadn't occurred to me at that point that, you know, the game basically principally was made by two people. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, not kind of, well, no, I mean, it's like the, I think the music was off a, like a music licensing site. Um, 
so and that you know could that made money i just i didn't think that was possible and, <laughs> yeah. I, and i didn't i never i never wanted to you know i was a software engineer when that game came out i wasn't working in the game industry and i never even considered trying to sort of climb up through the triple a gaming world um uh so yeah i just i thought you know this has puzzles and it has art and i think i can do that kind of thing and you know it will leverage skills that i'm not using as a software engineer uh, talk about some of the the art style. I mean, there's, uh, it seems like there's a bunch of influences here. Whether it's Shel Silverstein or yeah, you know, um, yeah, or, uh, Chris Van Allsburg is a children's book author. I, uh, Christopher Manson, who made this, uh, made a bunch of puzzle books, including one called Maze that I often mention. Mm. That was a, a huge influence. I mean, his style looks on the surface different because he does like um, etchings, like woodblock etchings. Um, and uh, David Roberts, this old uh, illustrator who did a lot of paintings of um, in the Middle East, um, you know, Edward Gorey, Chris Ware. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, I only know, I only have one style that I can work in. So as far as like how I render things, like I, you know, I have, in the course of releasing the game, I reconnected with, old friends from high school who saw like the release coverage and they just recognized the art style, um, you know, from knowing me in, in high school. So I, I only draw one way. I mean, I can, I take visual inspiration in terms of like designing the, you know, architecture and furniture in the scenes, but in terms of like how I render things and like how I draw lines and how I shade things, I only have one style. I can only draw, draw, you know, like me, but unconsciously, everything I've absorbed over my life has, has fed into that. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to wrap up maybe by asking you about the soundtrack, which is maybe the one major component of the game that you had help with. So, and it has this interlocking element to it that is very much in line philosophically with the design of the game itself. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, we, we thought a lot about it. Um, I, I wanted the the you know the story is told indirectly um and i wanted the the music not to be like a traditional uh, dramatic score that would you know hammer in certain feelings at certain times um but to kind of have the elusive quality of of you know the, the game is about mystery and like and the unknowable in in many ways um and so i wanted the music to be about tone except for a couple moments in the game it's just uh should feel you know it's i think it's feels experimental in some ways in the way in, in the way it layers sound together um and you know we tried to use some unusual sounds and instrumentation in a lot of scenes mm-hmm. uh and uh you know i i I'm really happy with it. I, I like the way it's like it feels different from other scores. And uh, the sound design is kind of uh, kind of has the opposite function in a way. It it's it helps to ground everything uh, because I want this scenes inside the game to feel like real. They could they're part of a world, uh, like and sort of a naturalistic part of a world. They're not all. I mean, sometimes you go inside a picture inside 
the game world mm-hmm. um, to a more fantastical place. But, you know, the sort of top level uh, reality inside the game world is uh, has should have some ordinariness to it or some some naturalness to it. And, and sound design helps with that a lot where, you know, you can it helps it feel like you're looking into a space and not just at a, a flat picture because you can hear things from off uh from outside the frame kind of so the sound makes the kind of space open up behind the frame and makes it feel like it's a physical place and that's what's that ambiguity between this is a drawing oh no this is a space you can explore is a big part of what the game's all about and Mm -hmm. yeah so sound design helps with the sort of this is a space this is a real living space uh half of that um ambiguity right how did you how did you settle on some of those sound effects uh well i mean i uh eduardo uh ortiz frau who was my sound designer i mean he you know he and joel had a lot of uh autonomy mm. and um you know they made some like you know there's a i think it's still in there there's a room in the game where eduardo put in ocean sounds and i didn't uh ask for that or ask him but I mean I liked it when he did it and uh I you know I I wasn't my approach to collaboration was to kind of give each each person their own uh you know their own territory and I would basically just exercise vetoes um and because you know I think of the sound the team as like creative collaborators so yeah i mean i i was most interested i think in um ambient sound the sound as a as a way to set the scene because i think you know you spend most of the game at rest uh and yeah I, i was mostly happy with what Eduardo put together, he put together some extremely layered soundscapes, uh, and, you know, the sound of birds and air movement and, uh, cicadas and, you know, I, I love all that stuff and yeah. it's very, very tactile. Yeah. The, the net effect of the sound and the visuals and the movement of the panels, it just all produces this very serene <laughs> meditative state in me while I'm playing, which is yeah. very pleasant and sort of sets it apart from a lot of games. Yeah. The, the, the challenge with the ambient sound is that only one tile is playing. It's the ambient sound at a time. And so you kind of have to figure out where the player's kind of mental space is, which which tile they think of themselves as being inside at a given time and play that sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that was sort of the opposite approach, again, from music, which plays all at once, but mixing the ambiences together didn't didn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, it is uh, great that the game came together. It's always yeah. inspiring for people to read, particularly people who harbor some creative ambitions of their own to read yeah. about someone yeah. who had an idea that was long in gestation in one form or another and ultimately found what seems to be its perfect or 
closest to perfect possible form of expression. So I'm glad that it came together and uh, that you were able to find a way to make it happen. You can all find Gorgoa. It's on Windows. It's on iOS. It's on Switch. You can read about it more at gorgoa.com, on Twitter, at Gorgoa. Jason Roberts is on Twitter at RebusCube. So Jason, congratulations again. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back to talk about Star Wars. Did you know that many retailers mark up warranties on items you buy anywhere from one to 500%? I knew. In fact, most people don't realize it's where most big box retailers make a majority of their profits. Meanwhile, you have no idea what's covered by your warranty and you know that receipt is going to wind up in a shoebox in your closet, never to be seen again, thankfully. There's a better way. Oh, I started, need a better way. Yeah, there's got to be a better way. And listen, be. here it is. Upsy. Started by a guy who learned the ins and outs of the warranty industry and was tired of consumers getting screwed at the register, Upsy gives you up to 70% on warranties versus traditional retailers. So you know exactly what's covered before you buy. Better yet... Upsy will save all your warranties and receipts in one convenient place. You can even use Upsy to protect the items you buy, including holiday gifts, weeks after you buy them. Head to Upsy, U-P-S-I-E dot com, and use promo code ACHIEVEMENT for 10% off your first purchase. That's Upsy dot com and promo code ACHIEVEMENT. And with the free Upsy app, you can purchase coverage access your account information, and start the claims process all with the push of a button. This is a good idea. I don't understand warranties at all. I need this. I've never (laughs) understood that at all. (laughs) Neither have I. Jason, it's time to talk about Star Wars. I'm excited about this. Love Star Wars. I I love the wars and the stars. So do I. And I think the first podcast we ever did together was a Star Wars podcast when we saw The Force Awakens together and then did a pod about it. People seemed to like it. We liked it. It led to a lot more podcasts. And now it's all coming full circle. We're going to talk about Star Wars again. So The Last Jedi, I know you've binge-moded about it once or twice already, but we will try to tread on some new ground here. And- I've seen it three times now in theaters, and I have to say that I have appreciated it in a different way each time. I feel like this is one of the most multi-layered Star Wars movies, like the the yes, which I think has fueled a thriving industry of takes over the past few weeks. It's like nonstop backlash, backlash to the backlash, reinterpretations of the movie, and we'll get into all of that, but. I'll just say, I mean, on a superficial level, I really liked it. <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. The first time I saw it, I was sleep deprived and sort of in a Star Wars stupor. And I just enjoyed it on a very surface level. Ooh, look, it's lightsabers and Luke and yes. space battles. And it works yes. that way. Like I had the typical emotional response to a good Star Wars movie. I had the highs and the emotions, sad, exhilarated, ran the gamut. And then each time I've seen it since, I've kind of been able to step back a bit, appreciate the little details and all the more subtle things that Ryan Johnson is doing here. And I have to say, for me at least, seeing it multiple times has enhanced my appreciation for this film. I feel the same way. The first time seeing it, uh, 
I was I was blown away by the spectacle spectacle the set piece stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's some there's some imagery in here that is genuinely breathtaking. Yes, you know the opening battle scene, uh, the H- Holdo's uh, light speed maneuver. Yeah, I have I have a lot to say scene. about that moment, it's, but I know you do. <laughs> but visually, as, as I know you do. Visually, very yeah, striking. If <laughs> yes, the uh, the the. Uh, the stuff underpinning that maybe not so much. We'll talk about that in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there was stuff that I, that I didn't like. I, yep. I, I thought the space Monaco went on a little bit too long. And Agreed. then on second viewing, you know what? I, I still feel like the space Monaco stuff is, is a bit too long. And I thought the movie could have ended in a different place. That said, I really respect the dedication to the theme of renewal and the theme of, yes. of moving past history and creating new history that suffuses every line, almost every single scene, every even stuff I didn't like. For instance, um, the movie ends with uh, Ryan Johnson takes us back to Crate, aka Space Monaco, where we see the, uh, the young children of the stables. Oh, Canto Bite. Of- Canto Bite. Uh, Canto, uh, excuse me, Canto Bite, not Crate. <laughs> yes, not the salt planet, Canto Bite, the casino planet. We go back to Canto Bite. And we see the young children of the uh, Faultier stables mm-hmm. uh, talking about the battle right. on Crate. And they've got a little uh, ATAT that they've crafted out of something and they're telling the story. Yeah. And that was just like on the on second viewing, it was so meta because obviously toys are such an important part of Star Wars as a brand and as, as a marketing vehicle. You know, just and the experience of Star Wars in a lot of ways is about toys. Mm-hmm you know, uh, of lusting after these toys, these action figures and telling the story, telling your own story that way. You know, I don't know how many times like, you know, I've taken Star Wars toys and, and made up my own scenes. And now he, you're watching that happen on, on the screen. Yeah. And it's, it's such a meta commentary on what Johnson is trying to do, which is uh, take a incredible IP with a rich storytelling history and pass it on to a new generation and say, okay, here's, here's your toys now and you can play with these. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the first time I was like, whatever, I didn't, I don't care about this. The second time I, I, whether or not it landed emotionally and it really, it didn't that much. I just appreciated it for, uh, I understood why that scene was in there. Yeah. Um, I liked it. I liked it a lot better on, 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 second viewing yeah i did too so i think and we're spoiling this movie if it in case it wasn't clear i think by now probably most people who don't want to hear spoilers have already seen it and if not they have only themselves to blame so i think that i saw kirk hamilton of kotaku say on twitter that the complaints about the last jedi have only make it made him like it more which i think is true for me too at least with certain complaints about this movie so yes I think there are some valid complaints and and we'll touch on those, but all of the complaints and, and I don't want to overblow the backlash here because look, sure. critics love this movie audiences in theaters, according to Comscore and other audience survey metrics, love this movie. It's making lots and lots of money somewhere between yes. Rogue One and the force awakens, which I think is what you would expect. So the backlash such as it is, is limited to, you know, rotten tomatoes, user scores and, May have been some of which might right, right. may have been hacked. Yeah, possibly. So I don't want to make too much of that, but I think that to the degree that there's a backlash about just Ryan Johnson messing with established Star Wars mystique and traditions, I think 
that just that's one of the things that I value most about this movie because that has to be done unless we're going to get cookie cutter versions of the same story over and over for the foreseeable future. And Johnson, of course, is already helming another trilogy to come. And we've got a new Star Wars movie every year at this point. We can't keep recycling. And in his case, it's coming from a place of love. It's not like he's someone who hates Star Wars and thinks I'm just going to burn it all down. They finally gave me the keys to this thing and I'm just going to trash it. He loves Star Wars. He just realizes and recognizes that it has to change in some ways if it's going to keep us interested. And so any complaints about like Ray's parentage and the fact that Ray is not a Skywalker or a secret solo or something, or the fact that Luke has changed in the last three decades. Those things to me right. are the strongest <laughs> elements of the movie, really. I agree. Do you want to see the same reveal about the Skywalker family tree and Ray is someone's sister or daughter? I don't want to see that again. We've seen that. Yeah, I think I, it's interesting to me that, um, you know the the criticism of Force Awakens was oh this is it's Episode Four like right. almost exactly the same beats and now you have a movie that really tries to strike out in new directions and it's oh my like <laughs> this doesn't make any sense and this would never happen Luke would never ask like the act like this yeah and and like more specifically I find the criticism of some of the, uh, you know, we'll get to the Holdo maneuver that as a separate <laughs> entity, uh-huh. but I find some of the criticism of kind of like the world building stuff yes, uh, to be um, a little self-serving. I mean, when you look at the original trilogy, even the, and the way the prequels slot into the, the, the fictional reality of the original trilogy, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense there. You know, mm-hmm. like when, when the empire is, uh, searching for the millennium falcon on that asteroid in empire strikes back they also drop gravity bombs like mm. on an asteroid like so you know stuff like hey well how, how are they dropping bombs like on on the dreadnought in the beginning of the thing if there's no gravity in space it, they've done that before like and nobody yeah even, i don't know yeah blinked. maybe nobody cared the, about how do, the bomb how releasing do mechanism and, pushes them out yeah. i don't know whatever you know they, i mean they can travel at light speed guys they can figure out <laughs> how to drop bombs in space <laughs> right you know how do minox live on a freaking asteroid why is there a uh, why is there an atmosphere inside an asteroid right like, why is can, every like, occupied planet habitable to humans seemingly yes so. like why why does why uh does ben kenobi think hiding out uh like five miles from where luke skywalker <laughs> is hidden with his actual blood family is a why does and, he think that's a good idea and the actual like, and nobody, surname skywalker yeah, yeah with, his, with his actual name and it's like this is not you know like nobody blinked at this stuff and so to now like pick apart um some of the things with uh the last jedi just it this kind of stuff has always existed uh star wars um, is good. It has never been particularly good with the small details. Mm-hmm. They're great. It's been great and, and in fact thrilling with kind of like the sweeping scope of adventure and world building. But when it comes to like the nitty gritty stuff of, you know, like you get midichlorians and, and things like it's, it's much more hit and miss. So I think, um, I, you know, like some of, some of the, the more pointed criticisms, um, I just I, I I just don't buy into that much, and yeah. I, which is not to which is not to say that people aren't 
you know, can't feel that way. Mm-hmm. I just, I just think it's, it, you know, this stuff has always existed in Star Wars. Yeah. And to me, shaggy, grumpy old Luke feels like a natural evolution of yeah. Luke to me. Like, yeah, he was never the perfect hero. He was always flawed. He was always impulsive and petulant. I would totally expect Luke to just exile himself when something yes. went wrong. That is who Luke is. He's probably still mad about not getting to go to Tashi Station and pick up his power converters. So, <laughs> so that didn't bother me at all, really. And I me think either. that Mark Hamill's performance has improved by leaps and bounds in his many years yeah. in animation. I think he is a, a much more talented actor now than he was in the original trilogy. And he gets to be funny in this movie, which I like a lot. Like he was kind of an object of unintentional humor in the original trilogy at times. But yes. in this movie, from the first moment when he tosses the lightsaber over his back or when he brushes off his shoulder on crate after the bombardment, all those little moments or one of my favorite moments in the movie is when Ray is literally reaching out to the force and he's like yeah. slapping her with a, a frond or something. That was one of my favorite moments. So getting to see that side of Luke and of Hamill, I thought was great. So that kind of complaint to me, and I like that Ryan, Jack, Ryan Johnson has a lot of little flexes in this movie where he just acknowledges that this is what he's doing, whether it's in right. – like Luke's line about this is not going to go the way you think or Kylo's line about you've got to let the past die or kill it if you have to. Yeah. Those are all references to what you, Johnson you, is doing right. here. And Yoda, we are what they grow beyond. Yes, exactly. You know, all that stuff. Right. And all the little seemingly winking stuff about how maybe The Force Awakens was a little too reliant on nostalgia and on bringing back elements from the original trilogy so that you have BB-8 saying, I have a bad feeling about this. And most people don't even notice that he's saying that. Or you have Luke reacting to R2 showing him the Leia hologram and saying, that's a cheap move. And I love that. Yeah. And that line works on multiple levels. It's a cheap move because it's emotionally manipulative on R2's part, but then it's also... I think a nod to the emotional manipulation that can happen with a trilogy like this that's bringing back these old beloved characters. And frankly, I'm fine with a few moments that are just playing with nostalgia like that because it's not going to be an issue for very long now with Han gone, Leia sadly gone for reasons not having to do with the story itself. But of course, Carrie Fisher's passing and Luke now taking himself off the board, presumably he'll be back as a force ghost or something. But right. all these original trilogy mainstays are now exiting and we're seeing this changing of the guard here. And so once we get beyond these few movies, it's not really going to be an issue whether the movies are relying too much on the old beats because those old beats won't be there anymore. And I think we'll be glad that we got to see these moments that, you know, like the last Luke Leia scene had me (laughs) i think it was emotional it really was obviously the the subtext of carrie fisher's death but even apart from that that was just a, a very emotional scene so i will say that some of the complaints that people have about the galaxy itself not being fully fleshed out like people are mad about snoke right and about not getting any snoke backstory and To me, it's not so much a problem because Snoke is a means to an end and he's just there to goad Kylo and manipulate Kylo and then be overthrown by Kylo. And that's fine. I don't need to know his backstory, but a lot of people 
find that to be a problem with this trilogy and think, well, you have this big supervillain and a lot of people have pointed out we didn't really know anything about the emperor either. Yeah, we knew nothing, nothing about the emperor. Yeah. Never saw him until the third third film. Right. The fact that, you know, the emperor kind of, uh, we came into the original trilogy with the empire and the emperor already in place. And so we didn't necessarily need the backstory, whereas this time we thought the bad guys were gone and now they're back again. So I sort of understand why people are frustrated about not knowing how and why they're back. But I wouldn't really want extra screen time devoted to explaining, well, Snoke was uh, the Emperor's hand or whatever, or he came from the Outer Rim, and here's a flashback to Snoke's rise to power. But I think if enough people are put off by that, maybe you have some sort of nod to it. Or the galaxy itself, I think, is confusing to a lot of people. Like, yes, even if you go back to the original opening crawl of The Force Awakens, and it it makes it very unclear like how the resistance differs from the Republic and why are these yes. two separate things? And then in The Force Awakens, we see the Republic evidently contained to one single system, and it's just wiped off the map, and that's that. And you just don't really get any sense of the galaxy as a whole. And it it just seems like no one is particularly invested in this struggle. No one answers Leia's call. It's like, does anyone care about this battle? So I feel like they could have done maybe a better job of setting the scene in that sense. And maybe it even just, you know, rework the opening crawls and just say, here's how the galaxy stands. The resistance exists because the Republic does not want to openly fight the new order, fight the first order. And so they've come up with this proxy movement and and Snoke, I don't know, gives some one line backstory and that would satisfy me. So if that's taking enough people out of the story that it's adversely affecting their enjoyment of this trilogy, then maybe that's a fair critique. I don't want a ton of that, but maybe a little more would have been nice. Yeah, I will say that that um, the kind of the going from the destruction of, oh my God, what's the name of the planet? At uh, the end of Starkiller, the Starkiller, sorry, yeah, mm-hmm. three, two, one. Going from the from the destruction of Starkiller to all of a sudden at the beginning of Last Jedi, um, oh, the Resistance is on the ropes. Yes, is is a that gave me a little bit of of like narrative whiplash. Yeah. Now I understand. Sure, Starkiller blew up five or six planets that you could say were probably the heartland of of the republic and therefore it makes sense that the resistance is is has been severely weakened by a victory that is perhaps pyric mm-hmm. um like you said they could have explained that in the crawl they could mm-hmm. have said because the star killer base destroyed you know xyz planet yeah. before it was destroyed by the resistance blah 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 you uh, you can you can explain that better and that's a thing that you know you when you go from new hope to um, uh empire strikes back uh is not as jarring. The destruction of of the Death Star was a grand victory, and yet, and of course, this is with th- like thirty plus years of hindsight of this story yeah. being kind of like burned into your brain. It doesn't seem like that much of a narrative leap to be like, oh, all of a sudden, like the Empire is is like hot on the heels of of, mm-hmm. of the Rebel Alliance. That yeah. you know, that doesn't seem as jarring as. Oh, we, you know, this grand victory of blowing up Star Killer Base, and then all of a sudden there's like thirty guys left in the resistance. That yeah. it was jarring <laughs> and, and could have been explained a little better. Yeah, that that's one of the things I I keep 
tossing around in my mind, and I wrote about this after I saw the movie, but there's kind of this dissonance between the movie's message of hope and the basic setup for this trilogy. And I think it's kind of unavoidable because Disney wanted to bring back Star Wars with a bang, get everyone on board. And to do that, you need some ties to the original trilogy. So you have to bring back Han and Luke and Leia, and they can't just be chilling and enjoying their retirement. They have to be facing some sort of existential threat again. And so you go from Return of the Jedi, where everyone is singing yub yub and the force ghosts are smiling (laughs) and people are toppling Palpatine statues, Palpatine statues. And then suddenly things are terrible again. And by the end of The Last Jedi, the entire resistance fits on the Falcon. It's like there's nothing left here. And so there's this kind of, as you said, whiplash where we thought that was a happy ending And we thought the good guys won. And sure, the Empire wasn't necessarily destroyed, but we go from that where you assume they're just going to kind of mop up the remnants to Force Awakens and The Last Jedi where things are even worse than they were before. We've got like an even more virulent strain of the Empire, even more extremist strain, if anything. And then, you know, like we brought balance to the Force in Return of the Jedi and suddenly the balance is gone for for something that was like prophesied for millennia in Jedi lore. It, that balance really didn't last very long. It lasted a few years. And then suddenly you just got Kylo following the Vader path again, even though he had the support system of Luke and, you know, like the, the best parents you could possibly hope for. And so there's this inherent darkness to the trilogy yeah. where it's like, well, what was all that for? What was that last war that we won for? What was bringing balance to the force for if now, you know, a new generation of Jedi is just going to go wrong and the Empire's back and even worse than before and the Republic is toppled again and the resistance is on the run. It's kind of a Groundhog Day sort of situation. And so I don't know. I like that there's that darkness at the heart of the trilogy, but I also find it kind of jarring that the movie is just pushing hope so insistently whether it's in Rogue One with CGI Leia ending the movie by saying hope or then the constant references to hope in The Last Jedi or the last scene with the next next generation of Jedi with his secret decoder resistance ring and his Where did they make those? (laughs) Who's giving those out? (laughs) Comes in resistance cereal boxes or something. So that whole hope thing, and there's the line about how like you have to believe in hope at like the darkest possible times or it doesn't mean anything. But the whole thing is just this kind of like nihilistic message of what was all of that fighting for if we're back at square one or worse now. So I don't know how to reconcile that. Oh, hold on a second. Yep. Jesse's home. Uh, I love this. This is absolutely darling. All right. So I don't know how to reconcile that. I don't know if the message is that things seem even bleaker than ever before and it's even more important to have hope or or whether this is just an inevitable byproduct, byproduct of having to reset the franchise and you just kind of have to have these characters go back to being as desperate as they were when we first met them. Yeah, I think building off this point, I, I do think that uh, – 
Brian's choice to have Luke be so jaded about the history of the Jedi is is a good um, is a good example of of a way he kind of deals with that dissonance of hope to you know the of hope and the kind of return of a more virulent strain of the Empire. You know the the mm-hmm. Jedi in just even in an objective reading of what happened from the prequels to the original trilogy were, uh, you know, abject failures at their jobs. Uh, the mm-hmm. emperor uh, rose to prominence and accrued all the power of the galactic Senate right under their noses was hanging out with the chosen one all the time, turning him to the dark <laughs> side Yoda and the, and the Jedi Council were absolutely perplexed that the fact that there could be a Sith Lord somewhere in their midst. Who could it be? Who could this guy be? Could it be the <laughs> the uh, man hanging out with the Chosen One all the time? Ah, yeah, maybe it's not him. And you know, and then of course, like the head scratching decision to of of Ben Kenobi to hide out on on Dantooine and and hide Luke with his blood family. You know, all these things point to a Jedi Council that was not particularly competent and for Luke to uh to bring that up and be like hey you know like the history of the, of the Jedi's is failure I thought was a great um a great way to deal with this exact um kind of dissonance yeah. that you're talking about let's talk about mm-hmm. uh two of the most uh controversial choices that happened in this in this movie one is uh Leia's use of the force in order to save her own life mm-hmm. and bring her back aboard the ship and mm-hmm. uh, the Holdo maneuver, which threatens to upend everything we know about <laughs> Star Wars. Uh, I, I mean, I'll start with the, with, with the Leia thing. Mm-hmm. I liked it. I understand from a story point of view that perhaps like if you want to just take everything, take all the emotion out of it and look at it from a strictly script and narrative point of view. Yes, that would have been the perfect opportunity to uh write leia out of the story in a way that was Mm -hmm. moving and emotional and all that um for me in retrospect in retrospect um now according to johnson and and every interview i've seen that was how the way it leia using the force to bring herself back aboard the ship was in the movie before she passed away that was all her scenes were Mm -hmm. done um yeah and they did not want to CGI they her. They, CGI they put a, a statement out saying exactly. we're not messing with that again. Um, so yeah, I I love the scene for two reasons. Mm-hmm. One, uh, Leia using the Force is canon. And it's it's everywhere in the extended universe. Um, it's in right. a lot of the fiction there. It's a, an important part of the Star Wars universe over time. You know, and it's something that we've never seen in a movie. Um, that's one. Two. You know, and this is something I said in binge mode is this Carrie Fisher was a part of has been a huge part of my cultural life, you know, like growing up watching Mm -hmm. Star Wars movies. This is just a person that (laughs) that is uh, impacted my life. Um, And Mm -hmm. so as this scene is unfolding, like I'm like, okay, this is it. This is how this is how they write her out. And I was this is how they write her out of the story. And I was making my peace with not ever seeing this person again and then when she uses the force to bring herself back and save herself essentially it was just a of this feeling of uh wow i get to spend 20 minutes or 30 minutes or the rest of the movie whatever it is with this person that i thought was gone from my life so i really yeah it's it's, it was just really a, a kind of moment that you don't expect to have in a in a 
big budget movie where the where the fictional and the real kind of intersect in this really interesting way. And it was this moment that you just can't recreate in any other way other than seeing a movie on the opening night in a theater. And I so I really loved yes. it from that from that perspective. Now, yes, you yeah. can say from a storytelling point of view that they should have done things differently. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I love yeah, this scene. Right. Every Carrie Fisher scene in the movie just had this added yes. heft and significance to it because we know it's the last time that we're going to get her in a movie. And I think I'm with you. I, I like the fact that she never became a full-fledged Jedi. Yes. I like the fact that she has this power. As far as we know, she is just as powerful as as Luke. He says, my father has it. My sister has it. She knows that she has this ability, but she's had better things to do, yes. frankly. She's been busy. She was leading the rebellion. Then she was trying to lead the Republic, never got to do it. Then became the leader of the resistance and she's just always been on the move she's never had time to take time off and yep. go to octo or dagobah and just you know carry someone around on their shoulders or move <laughs> rocks or whatever she's had better things to do and i like that so i like that we meet her and she's still leia she's not like master leia and yet I also like that we got this reminder that she could have done it if she had wanted to. She had this ability and in this moment in extremis when it kind of came out maybe almost unconsciously or or out of her control, it was like almost a reflexive response. That's sort of how I interpreted this. So I liked it. I I thought that visually maybe it, it could have looked, I felt like a lot of the kind of titters and snickers that i heard like Mm. she had this sort of superman style pose as she did it i don't know how you make it look yeah how do you make it make it laughable yeah i don't know but maybe there was something to just how it looked but i thought that yeah the the symbolism of it the significance of it i liked although could she not just force float Akbar to the airlock uh, while she was, was at it? Was Can Akbar tough. get some love that in was this very movie? Tough. To, to lose Akbar in, One in that line? fashion, the he- a true hero of the rebellion. By the way, Akbar's dead. <laughs> a true hero of the rebellion. One of the most significant uh, military commanders in the rebellion's history. Uh, you know, a, a hero of the Mon Calamari. Uh, <laughs> utters one of the most iconic lines in the movies yes. in the series history uh to see him go out like that was was you know he deserved he better. deserved better aliens or non-humans just constantly disrespected in this movie i, I wrote about that too it, can chewie get some subtitles at this point can he get a translation <laughs> from 3po that's what 3po is for can he, he's a can he get two- some retroactive <laughs> medals for the battle of yavin yeah. Can he not have to hang out with Porgs only? Can he have human companionship or sentient companionship here? Come on. He's a 230-year-old Wookiee warrior who's liberated his planet and is away from his family to help the resistance. Yeah. And he's still just treated like a second-class citizen Absolutely. here. Finn calls him – Finn in the first movie says, you can understand that thing? Oh, terrible. Thing. You know, Chewbacca. well, listen, this is something we talked about in Slack a little bit, but I was absolutely appalled. Yes. Appalled. Appalled. Yes. At the treatment the caretakers. of the caretakers on, on Octo. Protect the caretakers. Absolutely. Listen, Ray almost kills one with her little lightsaber <laughs> uh, routine that she's doing there when she cuts the boulder. Doesn't and it even falls. apologize. And they play it for laughs. 
She almost yeah. killed two caretakers, almost flattened them, and plays it for laughs. And then, you know, after she blows the hole in in her dwelling, after she has the first force time yes. session with with Kylo Ren, uh, the caretakers are fixing her abode, and she says to Luke, "You know, what's the, what's the deal with those things? Call some things. Yeah. Who are those things? Who are those things? things? What do you mean? Obviously, the things." <laughs> Thank you very much. Are you know toiling to keep this place going? What is wrong with you, Ray? Yeah, I mean, there's so much maintenance in this movie. Chewie rips Luke's door off. Awesome That's going to have to be caretakers to do list. I was appalled. Unforgivable. I was appalled. Unforgivable. I don't know what they're getting out of this arrangement. We we clean <laughs> your stuff. You call us things and just act like vandals. I, get out of there, caretakers. Now, just separate yourself. Allow me to uh, ISO you in the post. I'm going to throw you the ball, and we're going to clear out the side, <laughs> and we're going to let you go on the Holdo okay. Maneuver. You wrote a really incredible article called titled, The Most Breathtaking Moment in The Last Jedi is Also Its Greatest Threat to Star Wars Lore. came out uh, mm-hmm. last week on the ringer.com, an incredible website. Ben. Yes. Tell us why the Holdo maneuver uh, threatens to <laughs> possibly destroy the galaxy and everything that, that we understand about Star Wars. Yeah. So let me first say that Ryan Johnson, I think, stretches our understanding of how this universe works in some really interesting ways, ways that I like. Yes. He expands force powers in a lot of ways. We've never seen like force FaceTime right. and force Skyping and all this stuff, force projection, even Yoda calling down lightning as a force right. ghost. We've never seen this stuff, but as he pointed out, we've seen new force powers introduced Every in time. previous yes. movies. And we've never known exactly what you can and can't right. do with the force. It's like, if you're super powerful, you can do almost anything yes, I, with the force. It seems like. I, and I remember Darth, so, Darth blocking uh, Han's blaster in empire. Was yeah. like, Wait, what? Hold on, you can do yeah. that? Get out of here. Or Kylo freezing yeah. the best, the blaster bolt in The Force Awakens. Like, if, if you take someone as powerful as Yoda yes. or Luke or Snoke, like, I'll accept that they can do these things. That's fine. And clearly it's a strain. Like, Luke basically kills himself, projecting himself <laughs> yes. onto Kraid. And, you know, Kylo says that Rey wouldn't be powerful enough to open up this connection that we later find out that Snoke was opening. So that's fine. And I'm okay with that. But there's one way in which Ryan Johnson tampers with our understanding of Star Wars here that threatens to destabilize how combat works in this galaxy. So the Holdo maneuver, when she sacrifices herself to take out the First Order fleet close to the end of the movie, it's an amazing moment. And just visually... And the way that Johnson, he's probably maybe the the best director who's ever directed a Star Wars movie and just in terms of visual talent and the way that he shows that moment that he cuts off the sound for an instant. So it just happens silently. I heard audible gasps and other like choked yells in the theater when this happened. So amazing emotional moment with a character we just met in this movie and still somehow credit to Laura Dern slash Baron Davis power couple (laughs) for bringing gravitas to this character in such a short time. The problem is if you can do this, if you can just hyperspace jump into another ship, this would be a battle ender. This would be a war ender. This would be something that everyone does constantly. And I went over this in exhaustive detail in the article. So whatever explanation you're 
internal monologue is proposing right now. I've I've probably written about it or tweeted about it, and there are some that make some sort of sense. But the movie doesn't really explain how this happens, and if the ship is in hyperspace and hits the first order fleet. And, you know, maybe it was on the way to hyperspace and it wasn't in hyperspace yet. There are problems with that theory too. But that's the most, at this point, the most likely explanation is that. Yeah. This is within the range of pre-light space. Yeah, I'm skeptical of that too, but it's possible. And it's possible also that... Like the hyperspace tracking that the supremacy Snoke's flagship right. can do, maybe that somehow makes it susceptible to being hit in hyperspace. Sure. If that turned out to be the explanation, I'd be fine with that. And by the way, like hyperspace tracking, that's a new technology. Right. But that's fine. The way that it's introduced is okay because everyone's like, what? This yeah. We've never seen this before. This is impossible. And then they adjust their tactics accordingly. Whereas the hyperspace maneuver, no one seems surprised that this no, happens. No, no, no. And Huck seems to recognize that it's happening in the moment. Right, they, they and, want to move the ship out of the way. We've got to get out of here. Right, and so if you could do this, then you could just strap a hyperdrive to an asteroid or whatever and have it be droid-operated and just have a, a kamikaze fleet, essentially, of just old ships or just a junk fleet just jumping into other people's ships. The whole thing just <laughs> really... Every battle from now on, unless this is explained in some satisfying way, if there's like a big space battle in episode nine and no one does this, it's like, well, why? Why is no one doing this? It works so well. So I've been trying to canvas Star Wars experts about this. I've been going back and forth with a couple members of the Lucasfilm Story Group on Twitter. And one of them, Pablo Hidalgo, I think essentially admitted that this is maybe not explained well enough. He right. said, in general, a gambit like this comes with narrative cords that keep it locked down as a rarity. So he's saying that in general, <laughs> if you sh- show something like this, that extremely like jargony setting, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He says, so in general, a gambit like this comes with narrative cords that keep it locked down as a rarity, but it's rare for a movie to have the ability to spell it all out. But when a writer proposes stuff like this, we all work out the ramifications and the limitations to maintain balance. So I think what he's saying is it's a movie, so they didn't have time to explain why this doesn't usually work or why this isn't a common tactic, why this has never been tried in the millennia of hyperspace travel before. And if this happened in like a book right. or something, they would and explain the now, limitations. So I, I would add, I would yeah. add briefly that, um, and then you touch on this in your piece, is on the one hand, yes, Admiral Holdo, we are led to believe, is one of the most uh, uh, competent and indeed brilliant battle commanders in the Resistance. On the other hand, she's basically mm-hmm. doing these calculations on the fly. You know, like yeah, it took about to ten go, seconds. It took about ten seconds <laughs> so. to dial this, dial this puppy in. So, you know, how yeah. hard was it, really? <laughs> right, exactly. So, I think it's it's something of a problem. I hope it's addressed sure. in some kind of EU material where they just explain this is why it worked in this case. This is why it doesn't always happen. This is why it won't continue to happen. So, that said, it's a very successful moment emotionally speaking and artistically speaking, and most people leave the theater not considering the hyperspace implications, but just marveling at that moment. And I don't even know if that's the the biggest plot hole here. Like if you're going to start counting up the plot holes, like how did 
DJ Benicio del Toro's character? How does he know about the resistance escape plan? I don't understand how he sold out the resistance. How did he even know about the transport plan? Because at that point, no one else knew. Finn didn't know and and Rose didn't know and Poe didn't know. So how does he know? And even like I can buy the lack of communication between Poe and Holdo. Like if they had been communicating throughout this, it could have solved every problem. But, you know, they're kind of at odds and she outranks him. She doesn't have to tell him everything. So fine. But suddenly like running out of fuel is a big concern, which is not really something that has happened well, before in can, Star Wars. And there, like, there's a million like, like rabbit holes. For instance, you know, when Leia, when Leia yeah, is, like, is laid up uh, in the, in her, whatever you call it, her, the hospital ship or whatever in the mm-hmm. medical bay. Yeah. Uh, she's like, there's no guards and, and Poe can just be in there by himself. Poe who, <laughs> who went against orders and was recently demoted and got a, a, upwards of 200 people killed, like can just be in <laughs> yeah. her room alone, unguarded and holds her hand at one point. They're in there plotting like what is essentially treason. Like it's right. <laughs> there, I mean, there's a million things that you could do with this movie if you wanted. Yeah. To. Yeah. Why, why does the first order not have any ship that's as fast as the resistance. Can't they just send all their starfighters out there? Like they, they blew up the bridge before with their starfighters. Why can't they just send them yeah, back? Or why can't they do like a micro hyperspace jump in front yeah, of the can, resistance can ship and then them? double back? Like <laughs> anyway, it's best not to think about any of that stuff yeah. too much. But, you know, and I'll just say like in Poe's defense, if he hadn't ordered that assault sure. on the dreadnought, that would have been the end of the resistance, right? Because right. if they had been tailed through hyperspace by the dreadnought, then the dreadnought would have just blown up all their ships instantly. So he may not have had all the information at the time, but he still sort right. of saved them, <laughs> even if it was inadvertently. So I'll speak up in his oh, defense. I... But, you know, there's little stuff like that. And of course, you know, it's been a, a common complaint or talking point that this movie doesn't really know what to do with yeah. Finn, that he's kind of been shunted to the side by the incredibly compelling Kylo Ray storyline, which is at the center of this movie. And Finn is just sort of off to the side in the whole casino storyline that is sort of inessential. And a lot of people would have preferred if he had gone through with the sacrifice on crate, even though I think, uh, you know, I don't, you still needed Luke to show up and save the day. So I don't know how that would have worked together. I need to see it, I think a third time to really kind of figure out like what exactly are the problems with the, the Finn storyline. But like in theory, the arc from uh, the Finn who is trying to escape, to get into an escape pod and leave in a cowardly fashion is just like, we're not going to win this. I need to get back to Ray. I need to survive for her. I'm, I'm not going to fight this. Mm-hmm. To the guy who's like, you know what? I'm going to crash into this giant laser beam emitter to buy the resistance <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> you know, like th- that arc should be compelling and then it isn't. Uh, and I'm not exactly, mm-hmm. you know, it's some of it, I'm not sh- exactly sure what the problems are, but like in theory, that should be hard hitting and it just isn't. Yeah. I mean, it's like I, Finn, the Finn mm-hmm. storyline for whatever reason just doesn't manage to find its footing. And it's unclear if they even know like what they're exactly what they're trying to do with them. Are they trying to create like a, a love triangle? Clearly, yeah. I think. But are, you know, are like they trying it, yeah. to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are they trying to show the growth of a person from, from, uh, you know, like basically someone who's quit the, 
quit the first order and is now part of the resistance to you know to to becoming a truly heroic person i i personally uh didn't understand why uh you know the the first order has come up with a with a genuinely new technology they can track the the resistance through hyperspace and yet no one is mm-hmm. like uh hey should we ask the former member of the first order about this do you think he might have any information about this could he be in on it? like no one is everyone just takes it at face value that he is now part of the resistance and this is totally yeah. fine what if he's a mole yeah, I mean, sh- shouldn't what somebody if- ask the question <laughs> <laughs> what if he's reporting their yeah, position? Maybe it's like, not it's, some new miraculous I'm technology. Saying, like, you know, Occam's Razor. Maybe we should ask the former member of the First Order who is on board our capital ship if he knows anything right. about this. I'm just saying. Yeah. No. That. No. That's that's yeah. smart. I think. So. All right. Yeah. Well, look, we've been poking little holes in this movie, but that doesn't mean we don't we love, love it. it. We I, do. I think, we enjoyed yes. it a lot. You can, po- you can poke and holes in every single It does story. the important yes. stuff well. Yeah. And just the emotional center of this movie is there. And Kylo is, uh, is it too soon to say he's just the most compelling character in Star Wars yeah. history? I, who's his competition now? Is it just Vader and Kylo? Are Are they... I mean, like, you know, they're maybe more likable characters, but I don't know if there's just a more fascinating arc. I have no idea which way he's going to yeah. go in episode nine, and I can imagine being completely satisfied either I, way. I, I 100% agree with that. I mean, just, just you know, I, I've never felt before how dangerous the Force is. You know, Kylo brings yeah. that out, like how dangerous it can be to really have um, – a loose rein on your emotions and on your impulse control, but also have this immense power at, at your disposal. Um, it just feels incredibly mm-hmm. dangerous. And Adam Driver's performance is awesome. Like there's a moment. Driver's he's amazing. amazing. And there's a yeah. moment where it, it, when uh, Snoke calls Kylo to the carpet and is like, you got bested by a, a girl who's never even held a lightsaber before. And Driver does this thing with his eyes where he's like, you know, at once yeah. defined, and then he looks away. You know, absolutely, uh, like mm-hmm. ashamed at himself, and it's just really incredible. Like, just a great performance, and I agree with you. I think probably the the most compelling character in Star Wars movie history. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the franchise is in good hands. I think, at least in Ryan Johnson's hands, I'm I'm very excited to see what he does. Being able to start a trilogy from scratch, I am maybe a little more worried about. Handing the reins back to JJ. I'm worried about the second Starkiller base coming right. back and being even bigger this time or something. I'm hoping he learns some lessons from from The Last Jedi because it really does seem like, you know, there are a lot of things that JJ left very open ended yeah. in The Force Awakens that Ryan Johnson was just like, no, yeah, no we're no, not we're going to do that. Direction. <laughs> Snow, who cares? Uh, raise fans, don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm hoping that Jada doesn't try to like salvage those kind of dangling storylines and and bring them to the fore in episode nine and that he just goes where Johnson is leading here and doesn't make the same mistakes that he made because he has his, you know, talents, obviously, for channeling what makes these movies so amazing. But he is the one you worry about just going over the same ground again and again. And I have some misgivings about a Ron Howard helmed Han Solo right. prequel too, but we don't have long to yeah. wait for that. We'll we'll know whether that's good in five months or so. And so 
Look, we're we're spoiled. The fact that people are complaining about The Last Jedi, I, I just did a, a podcast on Channel 33 about the lean years of Star Great Wars podcast. when we went almost 20 years with no Star yeah. Wars movies and almost no Star Wars anything. And here we are with new quality Star Wars movies every year. And it's fine to find fault with them, but we are in a pretty privileged position yes. as Star Wars fans They're now. They're going to be doing this and forever. It's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm excited to see where they go with the next one. And I mean, if the biggest problem is that you don't know what to do with Finn, like just having Boyega on your bench, like good. that's a good problem to have. Because right. even if his arc isn't great, like he's still pretty riveting every moment he's on screen. It's such a physical performance that I'm kind of happy he's still in the mix, even if he is off to the side of it. So Look, we're we're all in on Star Wars and The Last Jedi, and we find some fault with it, but we we find the faults because we love yes. the series and we love yes. the movie. All right. So that brings us to the end of this marathon episode and this year, a full year of podcasting that we've done together. I've enjoyed this so much from the moment that we've started just getting to talk to you and work with you on something closely like this and to talk about a subject that we both love and care about and think is just infinitely ripe for the kind of exploration that we've tried to do on this podcast. It has been really rewarding and we're grateful to everyone who's been listening. So since this is the end of the year, we've been thinking a lot about the show and the direction that we want to take it and what it will look like in 2018 and beyond. And we're really excited about the transformations the show is going to go under and we'll be seeing you again uh, in a new format and hopefully maybe even a new platform in 2018. Yeah, we're excited about the possibilities are our appetite for this has not flagged at all. And I think that you can stay tuned to this feed for news about the show and we'll be back and hopefully talking to you in, in some form or fashion next year because the, the video game news never stops and there's never always something that we want to talk about and just getting to hang out together in podcast form is, is always fun for both of us. So Thanks to everyone for the support so far. Jason, thanks for coming along on this journey with me over the last however many months it's and been a pleasure. years it's been. It's been a thrill. So you have been listening to Achievement Oriented, part of the Ringer Podcast Network.